You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, His Dark Materials, Episode 6, Northern Lights, The Golden Compass, Chapters 16 through 17, featuring Tana Ford. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as liesandarborgold.com or liesandarbor on Twitter and Tumblr. And hello, I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Glass Table Girl on some places on the internet, arithmetic on other ones, specifically Twitter. Welcome back everyone we do have someone other than us with our bajillion false titles because the true queen wow. hannah ford is here we're pretenders <laughs> blah, 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 blah. <laughs> oh she gave herself her own <laughs> hi tana thank you so much oh i'm so glad that you're having me on your oh. podcast what an honor this is so exciting we are this oh. is eliana's pretty excited i'm obviously also elated <laughs> I really was pumped about it. We talked about it all weekend. Oh, you guys. Well, now yeah. you're here. Was past tense. Well, now it's yeah, happening. Now we're currently pumping. <laughs> I don't know. Tana, we yes. know you as everything wonderful that you are. I mean, even without the titles, you're wonderful. But can you please tell everyone of uh, of some of your awesome credits? Um, I... Uh, sure. I make comic books for a living, which is weird to most folks, but I feel like I am among my people with you ladies. <laughs> uh, and yeah. So I'm best known for my work on Silk. I did 12 issues of Marvel Silk. Uh, this year I came in second place for the Hugo Award. Uh, Nettie, congrats. Whoa. Yeah, it's so great. We lost by eight votes, eight small <sighs> little votes. Uh, but we, yeah. I know, but we lost to Monstrous, yeah. which is amazing. And so uh, you guys should pick okay. that up and pick up my Black Panther work. Uh, but I worked with Nettie Akorafor on it. And you guys are a Song of Ice yes. and Fire people. And I have a podcast uh, called Westeros When Everly uh, with Dave and Tana that uh, we drink and kind of talk about random shit in the fandom. Uh, but George R. R. Martin is the thing that ties us together. And Nettie, uh, my author of LaGuardia and Black Panther, is one degree of separation away from George oh, R. R. Martin. It's uh, amazing. So I think you're going to say so close to, act to touching George. And I was like, yeah. is that is that in the goals? Are you going to meet up with George? <laughs> Touch him. Yeah. Just a little boop. <laughs> That's true. It's, hey, we all have our dreams. <laughs> Oh, uh, you can see Nettie with George. So if you guys uh, obviously watched season eight of uh, the HBO show Game of Thrones, uh, George does a like a backstage or a like a what is it? A red carpet interview. And the woman that is with him while he's being interviewed by HBO, uh, the tall Nigerian woman wearing a gorgeous dress uh, and chunky glasses is Nettie Okorafor, my author, that uh, we got to create a Black Panther character together. We worked on LaGuardia together. That's so cool. So HBO is adapting Nettie's Who Fears Death novel series. Uh, and she would send me reference photos when we were working on LaGuardia. And they were like, yeah. And they were of George's, like, not George's specifically, but she based hmm. it on George's Tesla. She wanted these self-driving cars <laughs> because she would drive around with George. Oh. <sighs> so there's just like weird intersections of art and life. <sighs> yeah. I mean, like both of you are a big deal. Um, 
way back when. Uh, at some point in time, I followed you and was like, oh, cool, she's the artist on Silk. And and you were participating in something on the Song of Ice and Fire. So I was like, oh my god, Tana Ford's participating in it. So. <laughs> Yay! Oh my god, no. Stop. <laughs> Stop. Yay! Oh, I, mm-hmm. I love our goofy little podcast. I have to say that, like, you know, we sort of, uh, we're one-take wonders, and so, like, the magic of editing podcasts is beyond us, uh, which leads to some, and of course, we're also a boozy podcast, and so we tend to ramble and be a little less focused than uh than the illustrious oh luminaries of the podcast world such as yourselves uh but can i say in true westeros Whateverly fashion yes! that i made a yes! drink tonight yeah i'm so excited oh you guys oh i even made it my westeros Whateverly cocktail <laughs> you're doing amazing <laughs> she cheers herself <laughs> Oh, so uh, a themed drink for tonight for the Golden Compass is, uh, let me find my recipe here. I ca- <laughs> uh, The Westeros Whateverly themed drink for tonight is called the Grey Goose Witch's Brew, uh, named, of course, in honor of Kaisa, Serafina Pakala's Grey Goose Demon. Love them so much. Yeah, and uh, and so it is vodka based, but uh, unlike what the name would suggest, you don't need to be drinking Grey Goose. Uh, if you want to be drinking this drink on a budget, you, like me, could use Kirkland brand vodka. Uh, and it is uh, an ounce mm. of vodka, two ounces yeah. of apple cider, like fresh mm, squeezed, because it's fall right now. And so this is like a good fall kind of drink. Uh, I used a half an ounce of cinnamon whiskey. The You could use Fireball or something if you wanted to, but Never again. that's not for me. Never again. No. And so I'm using Troy and Sons Cinnamon Honey Whiskey, uh, which is from Asheville, North Carolina, Ooh. which is excellent if you can sounds get it. Super, oh, it's so, so good. good. And there's like, oh, there's a honey to it. So, uh, uh, and a cinnamon sugar rim. And of course, in true Westeros Whateverly fashion, a dash of blue curacao. Uh, and you shake it all over ice and serve it in a martini glass. Or if you are, are me and you don't want to knock your glass over, you put it in a little mason jar. Um, yeah, and a little bit of cinnamon in there, and it's gonna be great. But how do you what what do you put in it? There's like a, you have another note here, right? So one more element to top it all off, give it a final stir. Yes, if you're feeling very fancy, you can scrub some cinnamon sticks straight into the shaker before you shake it all up, and then you really just shake it. Uh, but so it's got nice apple notes. It has a nice sweetness to it. Uh, the vodka is pretty boozy, so it'll get you pretty lit. And it's the <laughs> the blue curacao will make it nice and green, so it looks like an actual witch's brew, which I think is very on point for us this evening. And it also matches, you know, this past weekend I had the uh, unique privilege to watch the Golden Compass movie for the first time, and uh, your your beverage matches the fires <laughs> throughout. So I've never seen Good the movie. Good for you. I couldn't bring myself to watch it. Don't yeah, do it. I figured it was going to be hot garbage. So is um, it this? It kind of is, but it's sympathetic hot garbage. I've seen worse, I guess. I, I, I've i never watched it for the same reason that I never watched the last Airbender movie. Because mm. I was like... Same. Same. Yeah, I was like, yeah, life is full of bad things and I don't need... I don't need that. <laughs> 
But apparently uh, I did this past weekend, I guess. Maybe maybe not. I feel like at least uh, you two were together for it, which must have made it better. That's true. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you know, the second time we watched it, we decided to record a little ditty about it. A little, little thing. Um, it is for our patrons for their Patreon episode this month, a video episode where Eliana and I are drinking tokay. Uh, some beautiful golden tokay and uh, discussing the golden compass. We're very We're rich. We have many, rich. many gold. <laughs> many of them. Well, we're drinking a white wine I found that was called Rough Day R-O-U-F-G, right? But it has a bulldog on it. So it's also a pun on R-O-U-G-H? Rough Day. Yep, that's what I, I was- meant to say. <laughs> I was spelling it out, and yeah, I was like, like you missed uh, something. if there's a pun here, I'm <laughs> nope, totally it's R-O-U-G-H, it. and I'm going to try this one more time. <laughs> we were not drinking today, we were drinking a white wine that I found that's spelled R-O-U-G-H. Everyone, I didn't misspell it before this take, not at all. Uh, so it was rough day, with a bulldog on it, so it's rough, R-U-F-F, like a... Yeah, it was, it was really delicious, fun. definitely delicious. It was great. Yeah, I mean, it, it got it? us through the Golden Compass again. It, it, that it did. It did the trick. Uh, are you guys popcorn people? Do you, like, oh. make popcorn on the stove or in the microwave? And is it a go-to snack? I like it, but I don't often... No, it's not a go-to, but I do like it. I make it. Yeah. I love chocolate-covered popcorn. Chocolate-covered? It's real good. Have you not done that? I mean... I used to live above a popcorn place. Oh. Oh, maybe that soured you on it or something? No, I just don't do it. I have it in my cupboard. I don't know why I don't make it. I just don't oh, think about it usually. Perfect. It's salty, crunchy, easy to make. Ugh, it is my favorite snack. Uh, well, my tears were salty enough oh at God. how horrible the movie was. <laughs> so uh, we do talk a lot about the production of the movie and what, why mm-hmm. it was so bad. Uh, we talk about a lot of those cuts. We actually gleaned a lot from Twitagazi on Twitter or Energy UK on Reddit. Uh, they are like the super His Dark Materials fan. They kind of pieced together what the original ending was supposed to be. They uncovered some of the original scripts. Oh, lots of good stuff. So we talk about all that. We chat about that. And that will be coming out soon for $5 and up patrons on our Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. Oh, heck yeah. Yes. Boom, how's that for a second? It was. I think I kind of segued into that. You know, I think I did it this time. Like last time, I was just like speaking of a random thing entirely. (laughs) Well, thankfully you didn't spell anything else. (laughs) (sighs) (sighs) Would you guys ever do like a live watch or something? I thought we were going to do that. I thought we were going to do a live watch, but turns out um, apparently I guess that would have been boring for people as there are times in which I'd actually have to watch. (laughs) <laughs> yeah we are going to be covering with tana here tonight 16 and 17 the silver guillotine and 17 the witches Yay. followed by our discussion which is the book spoilers after section uh focused on the trilogy the main trilogy so tune out if you don't want to know what happens in the rest of the golden compass northern lights in the subtle knife or the amber spyglass we will put a warning out before we go into it and we are going to have an even dustier and not just a dustier discussion it is the dustiest discussion that we've probably ever had and in this dustiest discussion it's where the student has surpassed the master yes 
Because Chloe is pages into the secret commonwealth. Yes. And Eliana has not finished Lavelle Sauvage yet. Yeah. Gasp. Faint. <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's honestly so good. I am also putting Lavelle Sauvage and the Commonwealth on my pull list because I, Your need, to, I need to keep up with you guys. My Pullman list. It's really good. Uh, I need to tell you how to live your life. Tell me. <laughs> tell me how to live my life. I need you to tell me how to live my life. Oh my please. God. Just to preach for a minute, like, La Belle Sauvage was an actual masterpiece. It was emotional in a lot of the right places. It was suspenseful. It was a journey. It was an adventure. It was uh, bittersweet. It was full of, like, sorrow and hard choices. And um, it, it all is flowing right into the secret commonwealth as well. Like, there's a lot of things that cross over. Uh, a lot of sadness, believe it or not, which, mm-hmm. you know me, I'm, like, really into sad. I love to get sad. Being, like, fuck me up. Get me really sad. And it does. But it also has, like, that glimmer of hope that you feel. And just, um, I don't know where Commonwealth is taking me. You know, I hope that it's taking me somewhere good and, like, happy-ish or, like, better, like, even bittersweet again. But, um, I don't know. La Belle Sauvage was just something really magical. And I really think everyone should read it. What was the timeline on it? When did Belle Sauvage come out and when did the Secret Commonwealth come out in relation to Golden Compass? La Belle Sauvage, Lyra is about three to six months old, somewhere in that range. Oh, so we would get so we would get some of her origin story, but in It's first very person. good, and I won't tell you more than that. Oh. And then the secret I I just want to talk about it, so you have to go read it. It's <sighs> it's only like ebook wise, it's four hundred and fifty nine pages. So just putting that out there. <laughs> So, and Commonwealth is Lyra is 20, turning 21. So it is also Philip Pullman as a mature, like living in this universe yeah. for after they made a movie about it and knowing that all this other stuff, the HBO series was coming out, it was his like ability to re-inhabit that space. That would be interesting just on the surface. Yes. I think I think the HBO series was already uh, commissioned by the time that La Belle Sauvage come out or was already in talks to do so. So, yeah. So it was commissioned in 2015. Uh, New Line has held the rights, unfortunately, since Golden Compass. Mm -hmm. And we talk about that in our Patreon episode a lot, actually. But uh, because of that, Pullman actually had said in 2014, in correspondence with Twitagaze slash Energy UK, um, that he would really hope maybe, you know, someday there could be something that happened, like another version of it. And he just held mm-hmm. on hope maybe there would be another iteration. And then a year later, it got called for series. And now here we are. It is. Yeah. <sighs> well, the power of hope. We're going to talk about that. The Pullman held on to we hope. We're going to talk about that. Bringing it yeah. back in. I did it. Well, we did get some <laughs> tweets and emails we want to chat about real quick before we jump into these two chapters. Yes. We got a tweet from Thunderclap who sent us a Hamlet passage. And their handle is Donner Caution. They ask, does this relate to his dark materials? What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. (laughs) And yet, to me, what is this, in all caps, quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, no, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. It's definitely, there's obviously some stuff that he's playing with, 
from Hamlet. You can see that in the story and just some of like some of the characters and their motivations as well. And there's a short adventure story that Pullman wrote called The Firework Maker's Daughter. And the main character's name is Lila, and she has a friend named Hamlet. So obviously he's definitely referencing Mm. Hamlet here and there in ways, but... Wow. No, nothing to (laughs) see here, folks. Nothing to see here. Go home. Yeah, I think uh, Pullman's definitely referencing Shakespeare in a lot of ways. I wouldn't be surprised if he were doing so with uh, this passage, but the connection to dust and the reference for how Shakespeare is referencing it and how Mm -hmm. it inspires Pullman is the same, right? It's referencing that biblical idea that mankind was made from dust. I think the line in Genesis, I think it's in Genesis, in the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust thou shalt return. Which is why uh, on Ash Wednesday you all might have seen people, they're Catholic, uh, with uh, the Mm -hmm. ashes upon their, their forehead. But I think that if... Pullman is thinking of this line from Hamlet. I imagine that to an extent he's kind of arguing against it because like I imagine it's kind of, kind of like damn, what a piece of work <laughs> is man, right? Because the connotation of piece mm-hmm. of work is negative. Like that person's a piece of work. Um likely stemming from this usage, maybe earlier. I'd have I need someone who has a membership to the Oxford English Dictionary to look that up for me. Uh <laughs> <coughs> Uh, but essentially, Hamlet is saying here, that, like, I think that humans kind of suck because there's a, an irony of like, they're not noble in reason. They're not infinite in faculty. And I, the thought at the time of the writing of, for this, I believe, is that angels were creatures of apprehension or the, the theology behind it and not action. So it's saying that people are kind of like lethargic. Man is unlike God because God does not apprehend, right? God is not supposed to have apprehension, but just does because he's so sure of his morality allegedly so Hmm. pullman's work i think leans more towards humanism in many ways and celebrating humanity and the current life over the pursuit of godliness so i think that i can see pullman referencing hamlet in a lot of ways and if there is any sort of conversation with this line it's arguing that yes in fact man is noble yes life is great and consciousness and its and its possibilities are infinite. In this book, there's a lot of sacrifice that we see, but in the books to come as well, uh, in the second book and the third book, there are a handful of good sacrifices that are made by people that lived their life and went down living their life in interesting ways, right? Differing ways. Um, there's a death in particular. I'm like trying so hard. I'm like, can't spoil it. I'm like, you're doing so I'm good. eight books ahead so right good. now. I'm like 800 years. I'm like, these are all, <laughs> you guys are in the past right now. We're in the present. <laughs> You're in the both past um, and the future. We're living here. I know. Yes, you have you've split consciousness. Thank You're you. Unstuck. I'm the time traveler here. Yeah, I uh, I learned to. Uh, I can't say that either. Fuck. God. Life's hard. <laughs> Anyways, there are some deaths that are very noble, right? There's some sacrifices that are very noble coming in the future, and it's important. It reminds me of that line from A Song of Ice and Fire, of course, that men's lives have meaning, not their deaths, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the way they lived and the way they were. And some of the people that are in this story are noble, valiant people that are helping for a valiant cause and doing the right thing, right? Helping to save children against this experimenting and this power and corruption. So 
there are good people and there are bad people. And I think that duality of life will always exist. And Pullman does yeah, highlight that. One of the things that I think about is the word sacrifice, which means to make sacred. And one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is a lot of um, mutilation and I think you could call it a sacrifice, but it's not a willing sacrifice. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not made uh, to make anything holy or sacred. Uh, and, but I, I like that there's that playing with this idea of what it means to sacrifice and to be a sacrifice and to be sacrificed um, and the way that kind of works as a as a circular idea folding in on itself, which I think you can track throughout this series. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there's some stuff that's going to come up at the end of the novel that really tracks with yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. So, yes, yeah. <laughs> I think it's a theme here. I think he's playing with this idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Pullman does explore it in a lot of different ways. We have good people performing sacrifices on of themselves, of others. Even, and they, we also have bad people, as we're going to see in a moment, who are performing terrible sacrifices as you said on others but some are who perform them on themselves and i think raising that kind of question in later books so i feel like philip pullman here is offering a lot of he's presenting a lot of things uh and doesn't maybe break mm -hmm. them all apart and look at the minutiae of them but sort of opens the door to this kind of a analysis or, or deeper thinking and there's just enough here there's just enough meat on the bone to make you wonder oh how much of this did he intend how much yeah. of this was intentional um mm -hmm. yeah absolutely that there, there's a lot even as we go through it it's like wait a second what did he mean this yes and and it yeah and uh, as a lover of a song of ice and fire <laughs> you can certainly spiral into like mm. what was meant and the sort of big payoffs that come with that uh, and the other things that just kind of happen in, I don't know, the huff fires of creation. God, again, you know, so the whole entire podcast, I'm just going to be like, La Belle Sauvage, Commonwealth, I can't say anything. Bye. <laughs> oh. We need like a director's cut version where it's just me commenting on everything you guys say with, well, in the secret Commonwealth, <laughs> like an annoying, very annoying person. You could do it. Well, actually. Yeah, you could well, do it, like actually. pop up video or yeah, something. Yeah, pop up or, video. You know, yeah <laughs> yeah bloop. so oh my god the <laughs> smell of vision of the, of the podcast anyways so we did get an email from our friend lo who has been listening to our song of ice and fire episodes for a while and is getting caught up with his dark materials they just listened to chapters 10 through 12 and wanted to talk about some northern facts specifically about lapland in our actual world that we live in um, they're from Sweden and the northernmost state is Lapland. And this area used to include Finnish Lapland before Sweden and Finland were split after Sweden lost it to Russia in 1809. Uh, it's a very controversial name, Lapland, because part of the name is a slur. And it refers to indigenous Sami people and their own name for their land is Sapmi and consists of territory in contemporary northern Norway, Sweden, Finland and Russia. And it's interesting that Pullman puts the Oblation Board's facility in Lapland. Lowe says she's less familiar with the history of racism against Sami people in Finland, but by giving you a rundown of some of the stuff in Sweden, you can understand there's a parallel. The Swedish state have, in many ways that the colonial state have, treated indigenous people, forcibly removed Sami children to schools to civilize them. Uh, La Belle Sauvage and Secret Commonwealth, again, at the beginning of the 20th century, Children at some at these schools are forced to take part in ethnographic studies. 
and other scientific studies that were carried out by a racist uh, state institute for biology, racial biology. The children were measured, including their skulls. The same policies led to sterilization of many Sami people as well as other marginalized groups throughout Sweden, including Roma people, disabled people, and sex workers, and they were examined by that state institute. So the history is super racist, and it seems that some of the history might have inspired Pullman. Yeah. I can yeah. definitely see that. I know we talked a little bit about some of that with Egyptians yep. and the Roma culture that they kind of seem to embody. And it does make me think that Pullman is Pullmaning from those. Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I think that is something that it seems like he's trying to pull from that that wasn't even intended as a pun. Yeah, that that horrible, horrible history that's I think that the ugly truth is like that's the case for a lot of things and like that's why it seems as though Perhaps he's tried to make this point in in some of the books, especially in his portrayal of what he's named Egyptians, is that they aren't a lot of the stereotypes that people have shown them to be. It's in fact those who have been controlling the narrative, who are in power, who are the ones who are committing these horrible crimes against these groups that have long been maligned because they just don't fit into whatever the dominant culture is. Yep, we have our heroic Egyptians coming to rescue their children and doing this really hard thing. And Lyra later, I mean, we're going to talk about it. I can assume that everybody's read these two yes. chapters. Yes. Right? Okay. So, yeah. So the, when Lyra is spying on uh, the, the people that are running this Institute, she says that they look like anybody from London. They look like people from Jordan college. They look like the people who are supposed to be in charge and filled with class and you would think nobility or something, and yet they're doing this deep evil. And we have on the outside the Egyptians who are doing this impossibly heroic, a uh, very scary thing where they're trying to actually save kids and no one will help them. Uh, and so we're seeing the inversion of what you see is not what you get. These um, people, you know, that are told and brought up, trust the authority, trust the system. And then the system, instead of nurturing them, murders them. Yes. Yes, yes. Mutilates them, performs experiments on them. Uh, you know, so you have... The, the people in Lapland, the, uh, their sex workers and disabled people and the Roma people and this the Sami people all being tested on. I mean, you know, this is a thing that happens throughout history and it's the people that, you know, look like you can trust them. Uh, and I like that Philip is playing with those things here uh, and really shining a very big, bright, hot light on this uh, and how fucked up it is. You know, it, later in the chapter... They do things that nobody else would dream yeah. of doing. Uh, these deep mm -hmm. violations of the humanity of children and people. And it's galling to us. Ugh. Yeah. And and as you said, it happens throughout history. We brought this up last time. But again, I, I urge everyone to remember that this is happening today yes, in this now. day and age. Yes. Here in the United States, this idea of children being taken away from their parents forced into schools and ethnographic whatever studies um you know in the news lately again with the children um you know young very very young latino hispanic children come here they trusted that america was going to be a better place a safer place for them and they are being torn from their parents and 
put into quote unquote adopted, yes. stolen, kidnapped into other homes. And this is what happened with indigenous people also in the United States again, um, and it's part of the erasure of many different indigenous cultures here. So it, it happened with the indigenous Sami people. It's happening here. Just to start us all off, set the tone. And it's completely to do with yeah. corruption, too, that allows it to happen. Um, stuff that goes through actual official yes. channels that the people are told to trust. I won't name names, but I'm just saying. Yeah, I, I, it also reminds me of something that I was thinking, that I've been thinking of, and I know that you were talking about, like, Nigerian authors in Nigeria. I've recently learned part of the reason Boko Haram was able to get away so easily with stealing... 300 girls is because nobody believed because they were poorer, right? Nobody believed that this actually happened. They thought that it was all made up and it was something to make the current president look bad. But those girls yeah. were stolen. Anyway. <laughs> I like that I visit your podcast one time and we take a sharp political turn. <laughs> yeah, well, it's and it's hard not to. I mean, especially when this is happening in every country, every day, all the time. Yeah. Um, it's it's happening in my state of right Florida now. right now. We we have concentration camps full yeah. of kids uh, that have parents that are being adopted uh, it's away. It's happening and... in CPS. It's happening everywhere. Yeah. And it's, there are people with power that just let it happen and want it to happen. And that's... Do you... Th do you think that by having his dark materials come out that there will be a kind of light put on this or a social a raising of social awareness or is this just another drop in the bucket? Do you think this kind of thing can have an effect, can move the needle in some way? I think it can. I don't know if it'll be enough. Um, it's a true uprising and it's a true alliance of powerful people using those platforms, but enough of them building their own alliance of using that platform and protecting that as well and uh it's all you see actually in his dark materials right you see these people that all have very valuable assets that are good and want to do good get together you see the egyptians with their boat skills right they're in general their water skills they know the water uh, you learn this in some of the outer texts but the egyptians really know the water they know anything that's happening with the water they you know river thames they it's in their blood and you see things like that, or people like Lee Scoresby, who is a very, very talented aeronaut, uh, that have these skills that can band together and can stand as a force against a power as big as the magisterium, as the authority. And it takes that. And Registered so that's the vote, question is, do we have that? Yes. Yeah, right. Uh, except Amazon uh, is doing the coding for the election. So good luck. So, um... The Silver Guillotine, <laughs> Chapter 16, you guys. <laughs> they sold facial recognition technology to the FBI law by... We're all um, Now on with the book. <laughs> Lyra hides herself in first so that Mrs. Coulter does not recognize her at the moment. Because she has work to do before that confrontation. Like finding an accessible place to hide her furs for the quote-unquote right time. So she bundles all the clothing up super small and like... I was thinking about how... This is a huge just bunch of furs and skins, and it probably looks like, I don't know, like what you'd see on the outside of someone that's like fishing on the water on frozen ice, like just ice fishing away. It's just like a huge yeah. pile of like seal skin. Can you imagine just wearing a seal skin? 
apparently it's smelly, but apparently I, it must be effective because they they live their lives on the ice. Yeah, yeah, they are what? ice doggos in a different <sighs> way than the other ice doggos. So she finds that ceiling tile and she puts all of her stuff there, including the alethiometer, because she thinks no one will find that. Uh, she follows the original plan of playing dumb. So at least until she sees Coulter, she's avoiding all of the hospital staff and just like face down, shuffle, I'm stupid. And she feels super hopeless and anxious and pained because Mrs. Coulter and the monkey are there. And she just feels that pain, right? Whenever that monkey shows up, that same pain of when uh. it held Pan super tight and I heard it fucking monkey I just realized that was foreshadowing for things that happen mm. later in this chapter that's yep. a reminder of that uh, let me have this quote but the Egyptians were coming think of that think of Yorick Burnison and don't give yourself away she said and drifted back toward the canteen from where a lot of noise was coming it's like the eve of battle literally it's about to happen literally <laughs> Literally. The children are warming up with hot drinks and they're all talking about Mrs. Coulter and her arrival and Lyra finds her roommates. She asks if they can keep a secret and she reveals the escape plan finally. Uh, that when the alarm gets pulled, the people are going to come save them and she tells them to carefully pass this message around. Make sure the adults don't know, but let the kids know. Part of what I love about this scene is just how childish it feels, like, in the best way. Because this idea of whispering, like, so that the adults don't know what they're up to, it just screams, like, childish hijinks to me. Like, oh, we're gonna pull the fire <laughs> alarm, everyone! We're gonna go out during, like, the cafeteria during lunchtime! And it just, like, reminds me of an episode of Recess, which was an amazing Scandalous. show. Never saw it. Oh my gosh. Oh, but yep. the, he does, Philip Pullman does kids like very well in this. You know, the, the yeah. snowball fights and the fire alarms and the, like all of the, all of the scenes with the kids gossiping and then they yeah. interrupt each other and they're, you know, they have all their fears and, you know, one in three of them get it right. You know, like mm -hmm. it feels authentic. It feels real. You know, I, I am with her, you know, in those halls in those moments. And, and it was, uh, I thought really well done. Lyra's a great heroine, right? Like, she is a very fleshed-out kid. Um, yeah, she feels very real. Like, she is a hijinksy kid. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's part of why so many of us loved reading her when we were younger, because she yeah, she could have been like us or and then, our friend. And you know, Pan being this three-dimensional creature outside of her who will act independently of her, but they also work mostly in tandem is such a visceral thing. It's such a it's such a wonderful and easy jump to make uh, to think about your own demon and how you would never be alone. Like there are mm -hmm. conversations in this about with Yorick about do you ever feel lonely and uh, no, I'm a bear. Um, to not to like to enjoy your own company in the way that you do when you're a kid and uh, mm -hmm. and to have that maybe uh, stretched later in life. I no spoilers. Now, did no you say tandem discussion. or pandem? Oh, for me, it would be tanadum. Oh! <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, is it tan tana? Fucking yeah. yodel. I, it, my head was oh my god. <laughs> yes. It causes a new hope and everyone's super jazzed, but the room then suddenly goes cold. Not because of the wind, but because Mrs. Colter yes. comes in. How did the wind get into the cafeteria? It wouldn't get in there, alright? I was trying to be dramatic because they're up in the north. 
Shut the fuck up, Chloe. Guys, Chloe and I just spend a whole weekend together. Watching the two of you crack each other up in real time is a blessing. This is just a delight. Uh, Eliana's having a rough day. Uh, (laughs) God damn it. The children are quietly talking about how the adults go in the conference room to talk and discuss uh, things with the other visitors. And Annie tells them a story of Mrs. Coulter and the rest of them making her come upstairs for a presentation, hypnotizing her, having her demon do tests. And there's this line and did some other things. And it's like really casually slipped in after they talk about hypnosis. She's like hypnosis. And then they did some other things. Creepy and I'm like, oh, AF. that's yeah. Yeah. It's not, like, unfeasible uh, either as a thing happening compared to things that happen here all the time, too. Like, we've talked about it, but freaking, what, MK Ultra, top secret CIA project at the height of the Cold War that, you know, they say was officially only from 53 to 75, quote, unquote. But they conducted experiments on willing and unwilling citizens with, like, LSD and other drugs for mind control. And some agents ended up dosed in, like, committing suicide. And autopsies proved that it wasn't suicide because they were standing against it. Yeah. And in that, like, we see things, like, constantly through this story, we're going to see a pattern that the authority has the power to make people not exist anymore if they want to and experiment on who they want. No repercussions because how do you fight the authority? How do you fight the religion? How do you fight the all-knowing eye, the all-knowing being? Um, it, and it's, it's pretty scary. Yeah, and it's classist, it's right? Like, who do they prey on? They prey on kids that don't have a, any status in society, mm-hmm. that don't have any mm-hmm. wealth, whose parents, though they love him, Ma Costa, yep. though she loves her son, she can't protect him. Uh, you know, like, that. who do yeah. they prey upon? Who are the most vulnerable citizens? This is uh, an allegory mm-hmm. of our time. Who can fight back? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Annie thinks that the adults will pretend nothing went wrong during the fire drill because they're also afraid of Mrs. Coulter, which I think is just a great line that characterizes Mrs. Coulter's power. Lyra stays with the girls all day. She's doing sewing and playing and other activities. She's saying little, she's listening, she's biding her time, and as the day progresses, the adults start to act anxious. And the kids can tell, oh, there must be a minor emergency, and Lyra's like, oh, yes. It's that thing that I did That's where right. I released all the demons. <laughs> it was and, me! Uh, it's great because they discuss it in a bit and uh, she's like, obviously someone had to have done it and they discuss back and forth of who and like, thank God Kaiza used that snow magic. He yep. was just, yep. what a good guy. When I was reading this in college, I had a friend mm-hmm. named Kaisa, so it was weird for me yeah, to think about yeah. this gray goose as a male. Just, I mean, my friend was a girl and so... You know, it was just like I had never seen the name before, and then suddenly it's in this book that I'm reading. What does Kaisa mean? Did did you ever figure that out of what uh, your friend's name meant, and therefore probably also the Scooses? Yeah, so it's Swedish, and it's spelled traditionally with a J instead of an I, uh, and it is, I think, just a name. So for a long time, I thought it meant girl. But Kaisa Flicka means like girl, like Flicka is the Swedish word for girl. Uh, and so Kaisa's name was just Kais. And I, I think it's just like a the Swedish version of Karen Interesting. or something. <laughs> but yeah. Also, 
if my friend if my friend ever listens to this i'm sorry if i forgot what your name means oh my gosh hopefully they just never <laughs> move along kaisa you little snow goose kaisa come guess guess on our podcast tell us about geese <laughs> At bedtime, she comes clean with the girls that are her roommates, and she's like, look, I'm going to escape to go look around. And Annie is like, I'm going to come with you. And Lyra's like, no, you will uh, be complicit if you're caught. I don't want you coming with me. And then their demons are like, all, oh, we're going to fight. Carillion is a fox, which is Annie's demon, and Pan turns into a wildcat, but Pan wins and Carillion submits to Pan. And I guess it's common for battles to be fought this way with demons in their world. It's particularly common, it, it sounds like it's for children, they call that out, and that children will accept the outcome without any hard feelings, which I think is kind of telling that they call that out, because it sounds as though they're saying that for adults, if, you know, the demons kind of have a standoff, one of them might submit, but as they start to notice, like, station and power dynamics more, hmm. they might take that whole thing more personally, and hold a slight grudge, and I kind See of it? wonder, I mean, I'm not saying it's untrue, Getting old. I'm a saltier person than I was as a child. Carillion is uh, from the Greek Krilios, uh, which means Lord. So I I wonder, uh, oh. since her uh, daemon is named Lord uh, in Greek, if there's a sort of leadership role. I really like this character of Annie. Uh, and, you know, and I like the sort of like vying for dominance or leadership that they have going on here and the and the nature of their tussle. I like it a lot. I also like that there was no competition. Yes, that they were they end up working together. Yes. Just whose plan is going to work the best. I want to help is what she's saying. We should all be in this together. We should be working together. I can do I can climb up in the roof. with And you. Lyra has the, that hero quality of, you know, I can't hurt anyone else. I've already heard all of you so much. I have to do this alone. That total hero move. Yeah, but I think there's also wisdom in it, right? Like Lyra yeah. is more accustomed than, and I think if she thinks this way about herself, it's justified that she is uh, more accustomed to sneaking around and getting away with shit than maybe other kids that have always been in a system forever uh, because she's been pulling this stuff at Jordan College forever and ever. And so, and she does want to protect her new friends and she wants, and she knows that like all of these things. And so uh, them sorting it out feels really, you know, like, I just, I really like this character of Annie. You know, uh, it's sad too, because yeah, a lot of these people that she's meeting here, these kids, they, they have something that they think they're waiting to go back to. And what does Lyra have to lose? Oh, dark again. Chloe. I'm just saying, what does she have? Mrs. Coulter? Yep. Asriel, yeah, that's yep. gonna be real good, I think. Yep. Oh god! But she she does have people, as we find out. Yeah, like, she does. She does. She's got her big bear. <laughs> bear and dad. She does actually have these girls. They uh, they totally have her back. They make her bed with yeah. their clothing and make it look like she's in it with their clothing, just like in all teen movies. So that's some sisterhood right there. With plausible deniability, they're being very smart about the whole thing. They can just blame it on Lyra if they get busted. But I tried to do this once for my for my best friend, uh, Chloe Metter, this weekend, and uh, yeah, uh, her mother. This was the day of our high school graduation. I'm gonna just put her put us all out there, right? Colin was <laughs> like, "Oh, where is insert friend's name here?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, she's over with like." 
her boyfriend or whatever because I think that they had gotten into a tussle, um, you know, teenagers mm-hmm. and their parents, whatever. And turns out the whole time, Bed's best friend was uh, on the front porch of her mother and her mother got mad at me for lying to her but my best friend took it as like that girl has my back (laughs) and she was like can't you see she's very trustworthy she supports me and i was like it's your fault for not knowing where your kid was it's not my fault so that's how i feel about this story it's not my fault i was just here right or die possible deniability truly Lyra then jumps into some ceiling tiles and she follows the metal channels, seeing light through some of the translucent tiles, and is planning quietly to go from one end to the other end of the station. She uh, and Pan are all like whispering about the retiring room and Jordan and how this is just like it, except we all know it does not pan out just like it. <laughs> Falling asleep. Uh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, fire me now, bitch. <laughs> no, you're fired. <laughs> <laughs> we have different we have different job yeah we do very different job titles honestly and descriptions lyra's up there with all this metal like it's like metal aluminum-y you know crap it's just like scooby-doo she's you know in the ceiling tiles but she starts to cut herself on the sharp edges she's dusty ah she's sore she scraped ah, up. Dusty. Right? I, I, I realized as I said it, I was like, ha. So good. So uh, good. She starts to eavesdrop because she comes across people talking quietly, but she gets nothing. But then she gets to her destination. The top of the conference room. Destination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She, she hears a murmur of male voices and listens. Uh, she hears Mrs. Coulter as well, and they discuss the escaped demons that she set free earlier in the day. The student overseeing security, uh, McKay, assured them that they had locked the cages and uh, the doors when he left. And then they go into like a description of the self-locking mechanisms and how the exterior door is always locked and he came in through an interior door. But when the alarm rang, everyone uh, was outside in the yard because there was a fire drill and the fire drill and the door alarm or the alarm on the like hermetically mm. sealed demon room are on the same fucking circuit which come on guys this is just this is bush league like who who's in charge up here right like they can't do a fire drill right they the alarms are all linked together this is just this is this is just sloppy uh and mrs coulter's pissed yeah she feels the exact same <sighs> as you do i bet she she says this is bush league when she gets in there I also love that they're like, well, also you showed up and you demand attention immediately. So yes, I thought, yeah, I thought that that was their one power move in this discussion between like the sort of, you know, starch suits and Mm -hmm. Mrs. Coulter. They were like, well, you arrived unannounced. And so suddenly, you know, (laughs) you threw our routines all out of whack. This isn't entirely on us. In their like defense, I mean, this is a very minimum staffed uh, government funded place that they're obviously got a skeleton mm-hmm. crew also maybe no pun ish intended uh going on here and yeah. i mean it's not like they have every person in the world like they have like 10 nurses mm-hmm. and a few random dudes and they're ugly poodles that don't move yep and Lyra's sorry been intercision there for- <laughs> they are ugly poodles that don't Lyra's move. been there for one afternoon and she's already got this place like case <laughs> she knows how to move the adults she like tricks the doctor like it didn't take 
it wasn't rocket science. I do have to say, though, for rocket science. It was biology. Zeppelin showed up. Like, how cool is that shit? Like, come on, man. This bullshit is so steampunk. She shows up in a fucking Zeppelin? That just, she like, is a boss-ass like, bitch. Comes in. She is. But yeah. she's terrifying. God, she is just like an ice queen. Ooh, like in that monkey. Ugh. Everything about this woman is prime evil. Oh, she's just cold. So, uh, in, such a great in the previous books, the ones that I haven't read, is there anything about Mrs. Coulter? Um, very background, but not like very much so motivation, and uh, a couple times appears. Not often in the one that I did obviously read. The the future one is a different situation, but. That one is, uh, you will get some, some Coulter, you will. Do you think satisfying, like on a, give me the Coulter scale for, uh, Belle Sauvage. I think we just don't get enough of it. And that is a bummer. Uh, I would like to get more of it. I I just, I, that's the, that's, that's my, that's up my alley. I digress. Uh, they discussed who had the motives to do all of the demon cages and Coulter's like, it was an adult. You guys are obviously incompetent and one of you is like plotting. The others are like, it could have been a child. No, no, no way. No way. It could never have been a child. And Coulter is like, well, you should use the Tartars to increase security in their investigation. And she's like, also, what's going on with the new separator? The doctor explains they think they've overcome the risk with the separator that the patient dies of shock. Oh. <laughs> I mean. And yay. <laughs> They've used anesthesia with a maestat and bark scalpel. In my marginalia, I had a sarcastic comment that was like, oh, wow, 5%. Like, <laughs> yeah. Still pretty significant. <sighs> yeah. Yeah. I I do find it interesting that they mentioned that they use an embaric scalpel, which basically is an electric scalpel, whatever, because I think that's what we ended up seeing in the movie, right? Yeah. I believe in, so. in the movie, it's electric. God. So Lyra's trembling. She's listening to all this and she's super upset. Pan is an air mine currently and he's comforting her and saying they won't let them do this. And you listen to the guy say that he took some of that from the Skraylings, but also took some of Asriel's technology that he used his manganese and titanium alloy that insulates the body from its demon. Oh. Interesting. Red flags. Red flags. flags. He then asks for an update on Lord Asriel. Mrs. Coulter tells him he's captured in Svalbard and, like, he's probably going to get a death sentence. Whatevs. He was forced to give up his philosophical work, yeah. I feel like they're being really cavalier about this, like, whole death sentence. It's it's not the first time that we've heard it. Yeah. Alright, alright, alright. We're all here. We're all here. The gang's all here. All right. Uh, yeah, I I do think it's interesting that they're just so casual about like the death sentence. Kind of reminds me though, like because part of his sentence right now is he's being forced to give up his philosophical work. There were there were a lot of scientists, yeah. you know, who were and, and and philosophers and thinkers in the past who were sentenced to death for heresy. I love, of course, like the whole point there though is that like he was supposed to give up all of that research and then somehow he like manipulates them into giving him book pens and shit until then he gets like all the stuff he needs to actually research and he's just like out there starting a full rebellion galileo galileo socrates i mean everywhere uh well and something that we'll learn later is the nature of those bears (laughs) it makes sense yeah 
he can be very charismatic yeah. that uh Asriel when he wants to be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll just stay here with the bears and they'll patrol and I'll have all the stuff I need. It'll be fine. Well, he's like, this is great. This is everything I ever wanted. Now I can just like yep. keep researching here on my own. Yep. Whatever. Is it in these chapters where we get the discussion of, uh, not the discussion, but the discussion of um, when Yorick is talking about the how Pensa bear can be tricked? I think it was the couple chapters right before this. I believe it was last, yes. Yeah, and how he is talking about uh, maybe when a bear is trying not to be a bear or uh, when a man is not being behaving like a man is when, you know, you can you can trick a bear. Uh, and I like that idea of self and going against yourself, right? Because it ties into the demon thing. Uh, when you go against yourself or your inner nature or what you are, right? Like Yorick Burnison has this very much like, I'm a bear. This is what we do. I don't know about being lonely. This is, you know, my sky iron armor is my soul. Like he's very, he seems like a very centered dude. Um, you know, and Lyra depends on on Pantalaimon. And I think those kinds of like people that know themselves and are in tune with themselves contrast sharply against eventually uh, other characters that we'll meet. Probably the other Svalbard bears, maybe <laughs> that are being uh, I can't a uh, discussion yeah. maybe. Uh, uh, and but also like the the people with their little dogs and the and the people that work in Bolvinger. So, Panzer Bjorn. And that they went willingly. It's just terrifying. <sighs> Coulter uh, does not want to talk about Azrael because, you know, just how it is when people want to talk about their exes all the time to you. Uh, she, she starts to talk about the new instrument. It's a sort of guillotine, and the oh blade God. is made out of that Azrael alloy, and the child and demon are placed in separate compartments of the alloy, connected to each other through that, and then the blade severs them. There's another sharp object made out of that alloy, by the way. I want to talk about that later. We'll circle back to that. But uh, Coulter's like, oh, I want to see it all, you know, lustfully. But she's tired, right? She's tired. She needs uh, to take a nap. She's tired! Yes, of course, because this tiredness runs in the family. How many times are we going to see the women in this family take a fucking nap? I'm going to be honest, too. <laughs> Uh, God, what a dysfunctional family, so to speak. But I, I'm going to be honest that Lyra, yes, she has a lot of Asriel-esque-ness about her, right, qualities, especially the charisma, but she's also yep. very Coulter-esque, whether she knows it or realizes it. She is very Coulter-esque. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'm not going to spoil it or say there's a sympathetic side, per se, to Coulter, but you start to understand her character more, and she's very complex, very fleshed out. But she goes to bed yeah. instead of uh, going to go get all riled up and worked up and, I don't know, like, joke off about this guillotine. I don't know what's happening. It's very gross. She's like, all, the guillotine. I want to watch kids get severed. I'm yeah. like, okay, creepy ass. It's so creepy. It is so, it is so pure evil. Yeah, and of course, like, she's sitting there threatening, you know, I'm going to sever whoever did this. And so, dot, 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 <laughs> we know who did this. Um, so once Coulter leaves, Lyra continues eavesdropping, and they discuss the heretic research that Azriel is doing and how he wants to experiment with dust, and the men are very worried that Coulter's going to report them, and that her attitude when watching the demons being pulled from the 
it was very gross and concerns them. She's been very excited to watch them be separated. And Lyra is unable to contain herself and elicits a, uh, a small cry. The men hear the noise. They look for the intruder and she's not quick enough to get away. They get her. They seize her. There's a big attack. One of the men is holding Pan and Lyra is sick and dizzy and disgusted. And there's this little line that is just heebie-jeebie. He curved toward his Lyra as she reached with both hands for him. They fell still. They were captured. She felt those hands. It wasn't allowed. Not supposed to touch. Wrong. I don't... Yeah, the language here is very unsettling. I don't want to linger on this thought too much, but the language and, and the uh, implication of the invasiveness, I think, feels very sexual assaulty. God, it, it, even what we were talking about earlier when there was that very casual and other stuff being done. It reminds me a lot, actually, of A Song of Ice and Fire with Sansa with that part where uh, it very casually slipped that Pycelle had maids pulled her down and touched her all over. Yeah. Very casual, but you could have told that story if it wasn't that without that line. Yeah. You can fight me out at all you want, but that line's there for a reason. So they begin to speculate that Lyra had let the demons out. And then they go into damage control, having a back and forth where they determine her punishment. Which leads to them deciding, oh, we gotta quiet this girl from speaking about what she's done, what they'd seen... And they say, oh, you know it'll help? That that shock. The shock will make her forget who she is and what she heard. So they carry her through the station to a chamber with white tiles and shining stainless steel. And they cart her and pan her toward a cage of... Sorry, that's not a verb. So they cart her and pan toward a cage of silver mesh. And hanging between them is a pale silver blade. And then she screams, but the door shuts behind them, and it's a heavy-ass door. Not to ruin the mood real quick, and this gives me anxiety. Like, writing and, like, reading all this gives me so much anxiety. But also, is no one thinking, who let the demons out? Who? 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 Okay, good. Just wanted to make sure. Thank you. Glad you're there for me. Oh, except then they all died. I thought it. I thought it. I I really did. <sighs> and yep yeah, the the background of that is just like the fluttering of all their little tiny wings as they tried to like change shape and fly off. Uh, I oh. This whole scene happens so fast, you guys. Like, it unfolds uh, so quickly. Pullman just ratchets up the action in the whole second half of this book, and especially in this scene when they seize her and violate her and, and decide what's to be done with her right over her head. There's something really sort of feeling, you feel entrapped in this thing, right? Like you, and then they're, they decide, oh, well, we'll just cover our tracks. We'll just cut her. We'll just put her in the machine. And then she'll be too shocked to do anything about it. She'll just, this is this is how we cover this. Uh, and, and you feel really swept up in it. And there is definitely this heart-pounding terror about this whole scene. I mean, this is exactly how things are still happening, right? Like, oh, we'll just cover our tracks. Like, that's a corrupt government move. Yep. You just escalate and escalate and escalate. Uh. Yeah, and 
And it's like so intense because it's anxiety riddling, right? Pan turns into all the different animals. He's a lion. He's an eagle. He's a wolf. He's a bear. He's a polecat. But it's two against oh, six, know. and these men's demons she are does. She's a bush kind of person. Owls and baboons, and they pin Pan down, and Lyra's crying. It's really traumatizing. Ugh. She's Pan uh. breaks free for like one second and springs toward her, and she holds him, and he's like clawing into her because he doesn't want to get pulled off, and she's screaming, "Never, never, never!" And she's backing against the wall. It's so emotional. And the men still fall on them and tear them apart and put them in the cages. And a humming sound starts above all the screaming. And the blade begins to move and it's sparkling in the light. But then everything stops. And the lights come on. And then in rushes Mrs. Coulter. With the wind? Is that what she comes? Whoosh, she whooshes in. <laughs> Who is this? What's the meaning of this? Who is this child? She's demanding answers until she sees, oh my god. Lyra. So Mrs. Coulter, of course, she's horror-struck, and her monkey's the one that pulls Pan out of the cage immediately as Lyra falls free of it all as well, and then Pan stumbles into Lyra's arms, and it, it's this crazy switch, right? Because Mrs. Coulter, we've been fearing her the whole time, but she's, in a way, the hero right now. She's the solution. She she definitely saves Lyra, but the thing, and and you can't forget at any moment that she would not do this for any other child right like she would watch greedily any other child but for some reason uh lyra it has this sort of like uh this golden ticket mrs coulter does have some part of her that cares for lyra um but it's more like an extension of her right it's extension of herself an extension of her power and it's also this life she couldn't have and could never keep and never have of Lyra, right? Like, it feels very much so like this is the child she never got to keep, the child she didn't get to raise, the child that, you know, she didn't get to bring her up how she wanted to. And, I mean, Lyra's not a scholar, right? Lyra's not really training to be a scholar, especially not right this moment. She's a little busy with some uh, uh some hobbies. And if Mrs. Coulter had her way, we know what she would look like and be like and act like, but... Mrs. Coulter didn't have that way. So the end result, no matter what, is very selfish. But in this moment, you see kind of this horror on her face. Like, I almost did this to her. I have a hard time figuring out or sussing out right here what Mrs. Coulter's motivations are or what she sees in Lyra exactly. Like, I know that she cares about her. I know that that's her biological daughter. I know that maybe there's some sort of possessiveness or maybe ownership or something, but there is something incredibly spooky about the way Mrs. Coulter as a character has been crafted. There's a quiet menace about her. You know, that gentle voice of this villainous ice queen who watches as they cut the souls out from the terrified children that she collected for them. You know, there's like a hands-on monkey mind kind of sinister intent here. And so, you know, there's imbued in all of these scenes with Lyra are, is that discomfort, that disquiet between them. And it, I don't, I don't think I need to understand it necessarily, but I'm aware that I don't know why she saves Lyra necessarily, but like it is creepy and dangerous. Yeah, and I think Pullman feels the same way. We've touched on this before, how uh, he says that, in a way, Mrs. Coulter and therefore her demon scares him so much. He's like, I couldn't name the monkey. The monkey scared me too much to think too too much on like naming it. 
are there any other monkey demons in uh, is this a discussion thing uh, does it matter i i can't remember any it's not a discussion for one of them because we've seen it uh, dame hannah who we meet at the same time as when lyra meets mrs coulter also has a monkey demon and she has a silver monkey i don't know what kind of monkey exactly it is because i'm not a zoologist <laughs> all right <laughs> this guy has a baboon we, we just talked about this guy with the baboon well technically i guess that's an ape and not a monkey whatever i think with the little speech that she does give lyra it comes out very much so that we are different she sees her as you know i mean especially looking back on how she had to have risen to this power in this world of all men in the rooms of scholars, right? Uh, Lyra herself says, like, oh, I would never be allowed in this retiring room. That's, like, forbidden. Uh, and there's a lot of gender stuff that we'll probably chat about in a bit, but yeah. sometimes he doesn't quite nail it, right? But with that, I think it's interesting that Coulter had to sever herself to get there, right? To She didn't sever herself, obviously. Her and her demon are very much intact, but she had to sever herself mentally in the way to rise to power and when she looks at lyra it's we it's this is my opportunity yeah. you can be powerful come with me to the dark side luke, I am your you father. know um <laughs> well there's no luke it's just i'm your father <laughs> yes it, the reveal in the golden compass is so garbage and it's so uh but it like it's very much so straight from star wars like if you replace the names you're like okay no my assistant yeah literally she like yells no it can't be and it's uh, but that's, like, the whole dynamic, right? That she's like, yes, and now you're my powerful little, like, minion. It's very fucked up. And exactly, and as she gets her back right here, she takes care of her, and she kind of softly, like, pets through her, and she's like, I'm so glad I have my assistant back, you know? Like, oh, you left me, and it's very, it is very creepy, but it's like, obviously Lyra knows now what kind of person she is, but the game she's playing, uh, looking at her as that extension of, like, how can I use you? And how could I leverage my place with you? Uh, something that's been really prominent, especially in this chapter, we, we there's a lot of different, uh, a lot of different stuff with this intercision, and now we've pretty much fully understood what it is at this point, right? We talked about the dust a bit back as they discussed dust. How this is hopefully trying to prevent that, and talking about what actually happens with intercision, and now we've seen it up close. What was about to happen? It's it's pretty fucked up. Holy shit, it's fucked yep. up. Like, obviously, in this text, it's a little more fantasy, and it has to do with some other stuff. Um, it's metaphorical. It's not quite what everyday bodily, uh, you know, like, this horrible, horrible subjugation of this bodily harm is in our everyday society when we hear about it. Um, and it's obviously related to circumcision, right? That is, that's the main one that you think about when you think of anti-religion. But it's a lot like lobotomy when you see the nurses and the doctors there walking around with their blank animals or demons. Um, it's very much so like lobotomy, which, you know, it, lobotomy was practiced a lot more in up until like the mid 50s. So similar to that whole peak Cold War thing. And it's basically severing the connections to the prefrontal frontal cortex of your brain, the anterior frontal lobes. And it leaves the patient less responsive and aware uh, 
less self-control, emotionally stunted, they detach, they can't practice empathy or sympathy, really they can't do cognitive extremes, and it leaves them infantile, which is, I guess, arguably could be said is like removing the soul and preventing dust, right? You're trading one thing for the other here, but patients would die from this, uh, others would commit suicide, others would just be non-responsive forever, and the mortality rate in the 40s was 5%. Isn't that, that's basically the same as earlier. So he's definitely taking from lobotomy a little bit. And there are works that reference lobotomies, tons of them. Um, hell, if you want to talk about earlier when they tried to, you know, sever Lyra for seeing something and hearing stuff she shouldn't have, it makes me think of Rosemary Kennedy uh, in a way, like just that was made out of the media. The Bell Jar by Sylvia Plath has some pretty obvious connotations as far as that goes. The To the person in the Bell Jar, blank and stopped and dead as a baby. The world itself is a bad dream. And, you know, the idea of living in a society with all these things where you can't do it without just stunting yourself or stupidity or brain surgery and giving away your freedom. Or even Tennessee Williams, who references lobotomies often in his work. Um, his sister, his older sister was lobotomized. And you see this criticism. Often he brings up homosexuality in his work. Hmm. And, right, absolutely, uh, obviously. And in suddenly last summer, there's a woman who basically tries to bribe a hospital to fix her niece with a lobotomy so she won't spill her secrets. Well, this is the this is the five percent thing, right? Like, so people die, but then people like the the nurses and the people even in this fictitious world are only living half a life, right? Like the people that are lobotomized are are they really alive? Some of them can't speak. Some of them can't. You certainly can't think. You're not the person or the personality that you were before. A big chunk of you has been damaged, removed. You know, uh, and. I grew up Roman Catholic, um, and I was taught, you know, if suicide is wrong, if you commit suicide, you lose your soul. Uh, you lose the right to go to heaven, is what I was told, that if you don't have a soul, you can't get into heaven. And um, I think there's a little bit of a connotation of that in this as well. And to put it into other terms, the U.S. alone performed more lobotomies than anywhere in the world when it happened. Yeah. It, uh, well, a recorded amount, because we all know how... How, yeah, you know, yeah. Stable recordings are. Yeah. In 1951, 60% of recorded lobotomies were women. And in Toronto, it was 70. Jesus. And it's a recorded 40,000 in total is Jesus. all that was recorded. And you know there were more. And so you can think that like this kind of institutionalized um, malicious behavior or um, like uh, destroying children is uh is sanctioned right mm -hmm. like there is a lot of historical precedent for this kind of thing to be happening so yes we're outraged how could they do this you know in this fictitious world this shit happens in real life they were experimenting on human beings in our universe 70 percent of women Ugh. and they haven't stopped they never have mm -hmm. uh, and it's also it goes with that weakness right that the weaker gender, the frailer gender, the this, the that. Need to it's treat very, uh, them. Oh, I mean, this is a bit. Yeah. To fix them. Yes. And like, and and the more outlandish procedures for treating uh, the words hysterical and uh, lunacy, right? Like a lot of these things that we think of with mental illness are tied to the female sex and to uh, the things that we go through and the things that happen to our bodies. Um, and I, I just. 
And so none of this is surprising, but it's a little enraging. And again, with like this 5% stuff, is he pulling from real life? He's cutting very close to shit that happens in our universe. How much of this is there? He's cutting very close. Kind of wonder if that is something he's drawing from. I mean, he would have been growing up, right? Granted, not in the US, but he's growing up in the shadow of this happening, right? How did this affect the people growing around Pullman? Like, this is that he would have grown up with people who experienced this during, like, the peak of it. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild because it was acceptable as hell. Yeah. Yeah, and, and and I think the gendered aspect behind it is, I think, just so striking to me. How systemic that that was. Yeah, it's a little different, obviously, because right now it's focused on kids. And, and maybe it's because it's who Lyra hangs around with, right? Lyra hangs around with the boys. She's always throwing mud at their faces. Um, but... It, it seems we don't the, the roommates are like the first really big female influence we see on Lyra besides Mrs. Coulter and Mrs. Lonsdale that's the next her age female influence she's had yeah I think that there is a commentary uh, to be made about the gender binary that is at work in these novels um, and maybe this is something that should be saved for the discussion later um, because we have yet to meet certain other main characters uh, but but I've always been put off by the rigidity that I have seen um, in the gender binaries of this world. For instance, no women go on this expedition to the north. Uh, none of the Egyptian women, except for Lyra, there's no warriors, there's no Molly Weasley that goes along to fight for the kids, no Ma Costa out to save her son. Um, it's only men. Uh, and there's definitely throughout the series a feeling that like, men do this and women do this. Um, Lyra doesn't want to do sewing until the the uh, sailor, Jerry, what was his name? Larry, uh, teaches her, you know, to sew or to repair things, to stow her belongings, not clean up her room. And, and while I think that there are, those are some charming moments, I think something is lost here, right? Like the only people that ever do the adventure, if you're not Lyra, you're not in the story. Um, and I think that something gets lost there. Um, I, it's, I, I love this book and I love this series, but it feels very much to me like it does a disservice to the overall work. I wonder if like, I, I agree regarding the gender binary for the roles in Lyra's world. I wonder if part of it is meant to be a criticism of the way that, because much of these novels, of course, are a criticism of Christianity and the way Christianity has boxed a lot of those uh, gender roles because Lyra even like that's called out explicitly in another point where she's like oh what why are women wearing pants or something I'm, I I feel like that's not too much of a spoiler um in that questioning and and begins to see that maybe things can be a little different so I think that's part of it and I know that Pullman has it, it is interesting that he doesn't go further in that criticism or in pushing the boundaries around these because um he criticizes the Chronicles of Narnia for the depiction of girl characters. And, um, you know, to be to be completely honest, Pullman hasn't been really great in talking about gender in the way that people have been talking about it now. He 
has shown quite some failings in trying to talk about transgender issues and adding to the dialogue in a very unfruitful way. Um, but I, I do think um, I, I had been hopeful earlier on. That's part of why I called out that person who had a demon that was the same sex as, as him because I was like, oh, is that does that mean something? But then it doesn't really. And I, I think it's just something that maybe Pullman's not really drawing from. But I, I think that seeing the rigid roles within this society does at the very least contextualize to some extent, why Mrs. Coulter is the way she is. Not entirely. Some of that is just like plain cruelty, but some of the moves that she makes are things that she has felt that she has to do because of her gender. I do agree with that, especially when we meet her. Um, and, you know, we can look at some of the females that we've seen in the story up to this point. You have Coulter, you have obviously Lyra was charmed by her because it wasn't normal in their society to see such a fascinatingly beautiful woman, right? Um, but then you also have, moving on from that, Dame Hannah even, who isn't, when she sees her, quite as fabulous as Mrs. Coulter, right? She's very uninterested. She's captivated by Coulter. Yes. Um, and you also have, to move along there, the journalist at the party. And I think that was a very interesting scene because you see a lot of Coulter and, like, the journalist finding their woman's weapon, finding that, you know, the thing we can use in the society is our beguiling charms and our good looks. That is what they're using. And Lyra goes, oh, she's flirting, but oh, it wasn't actually for flirting's sake at the end. Um, I thought that was interesting. And I, I do think, though, that he gets to a certain wall and he hits it. Yeah. Um, and that's that. Yeah. There, there's not a lot of open dialogue after. And obviously, I guess at this point, we can't ask for much progressiveness from this because... I wouldn't say it gets better in the Belle Sauvage or in Secret Commonwealth so far. I wouldn't say that it's completely awful or anything. I think it's a little better, in fact. I actually take it back. I do think it's a little better in the Secret Commonwealth. That shows a little bit of progress. But I think, especially in the Belle Sauvage, we're looking backwards and at a time where the CCD and these, these ablation board, these people, maybe also were just coming into this power a little more. And this is obviously we've developed over years, and now they're pretty much full reign of terror, right? I mean, they're torturing children, like, openly. So... I'm gonna ask a question, uh, and, and I think it's fine because we get introduced to one of these characters quite explicitly in the upcoming chapter, so everyone you should have fucking read by that chapter by this point. But are the women... So, is the counter to some of these rigid gender roles that we see within human society meant to be held encounter with the way that the witches are presented because they're i think supposed to stand in for the women who are involved in this effort because they don't don't i think you might have something there yeah. so my take on mm -hmm. the witches was that we're dealing with like um not like a like a virgin Madonna kind of thing, uh, because Coulter is neither of those. Um, but we have, so who are the female characters that we can identify with, right? Like we have these impossibly youthful, yeah. beautiful, magical witches on a broom. We have this demonic, evil ice queen. And then we have the hero of our story, Lyra. And if you're not one of those, Trinity, then who are you in this story? Annie was great, but she's in there for a second and then gone. Um, who else do we have? The mother figure of Ma Costa, but she doesn't get to go on the adventure. 
Mm-hmm. To me, it you know, the witches seemed very much like a like an unattainable ideal of what a um, desirable mm-hmm. woman would be. They don't feel cold. They don't age. They will take, you know, lovers and and have families, but they look piteously on the men that age and become frail. Like they're they're yeah they are yeah, they're pedestal. like at the they're top on. of the pedestal. Oh, they're on the oh. pine cloud. <laughs> the cloud pine. So where are the Sorry. human women? Where are the human women yeah, in the story? Later, apparently, yeah. Jesus Christ! Like that's their role. <laughs> God damn it! No, I mean oh. it's very. I definitely think there's a lot of criticism, especially with the religion. Um, that's yeah. definitely in play, but. I still do think that he could be a little more progressive, especially with some of the the, the spinoff books too. I mean, but I I also would put in another devil's advocate. I guess no pun intended there. An authorities ad- advocate oh, wow. here that oh, wow. on the other shoulder, it's not a hundred percent focused on these romances. The only romances it's really focused on, obviously, are Asriel and Coulter fucked made Lyra. They had great boom boom, and they great hate sex. <laughs> Uh, yes one of the things one of the things that i you know so i i ask myself as a person like let's say i had to draw this as a graphic novel because that's my purview um it would be easy enough for me to make some of the background gyptians not maybe not john fa or fardacorum but like some of the other people women right like it's it's easy to draw a egyptian woman being you know, every bit as, I don't know, um, practical and effective as it would be for Egyptian man, right? Like, and it also fits into the caste thing. And so when you don't have that kind of parody, when you don't have any other touchstones of any other people that aren't absolute evil, the hero of the story, or in Up on a Pedestal Witch Brigade, then like... It just, it's grasping. And I feel like it's so close. It's so close. It could, it's right there. And it, for me, there just feels like a lack. And I love this series very, very much. And so I just, I feel that lack, you know? I wonder if this is something that they intentionally made the choice of in the Golden Compass movie. Because I noticed that Ma Costa plays a bigger mm-hmm. role. Yeah, she did. And is actually there when they go to Bolvangar. It makes sense. It makes sense to put her there. I, that's why they brought her along uh, as a remedy to this. Obviously had a contract, but... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, a lot of people had a contract, but, you know, this movie was what it was, so... Yeah, like Adonzo, <laughs> the voice of York. sorry. Yeah, um, so, like... Sorry you got recast by Ian McKellen after you yeah. recorded the whole movie. <laughs> oh, what a mess. Go check out the Patreon episode yeah. for five dollars yeah. and get all of this juicy content. God, yeah, it's just drinking wine. It's very elementary, right? It's very elementary. Yeah. It uh, it doesn't yeah. dive deep enough into some of these connections, so it doesn't hold up uh in that as an adult. I mean, if we were kids, it probably would be fine and we wouldn't notice at all. But it also should be an open text. So I don't know. I hope that uh, when I get through the next four hundred fifty pages of Secret Commonwealth, I can come back and say, you know what? I'm going to argue with you guys because I think you did blank blank actually better. I hope that's what I can say. So we'll see you guys. I don't think it'll happen. There was sort of a praise around this idea of a tomboy, right? A girl who hangs with the guys, right? Can seamlessly go into that world. And and as you said, we don't really see Lyra having those same sort of interactions with other girls her age and sharing those. And I think that young girls notice that. They they might not be able to put words to it, but they internalize that. Especially because the next kid 
female interaction that she gets is in the second book, and it's probably not really a pleasant one. But you know where we are. The witches. We're at chapter 17, the witches. The witches. You know, I'm excited about this chapter, but I'm more excited about the next chapter that we're not going to do tonight. Oh, <laughs> Just because this is I great, know. but like, the next chapter has some really good dialogue. Uh, yeah, this is just the intake of breath before you get the yeah. like, brrr, like all the good stuff that comes out. But this is a huge yeah, sorry, action Jenna. one. It's a huge action one. It is. It is. So it much is. happens here so fast. So we'll just jump in. Uh, Lyra is awake and feels like she was just pulled from cold water. And Pan is so sweet, sweet little Pan. He's warming and loving her back to life. But they're both aware of Mrs. Coulter preparing for a drink of something, and of course they're aware of the monkey and he's running his fingers over Lyra's body <laughs> touching the oilskin pouch at her waist Ugh. not okay <laughs> yep uh, Mrs. Coulter gives her something to drink and before she's defiant Hannah's like we're only safe while they pretend in their heads he thinks at her so she yep. just starts to cry uncontrollably like this isn't even she didn't plan this one this isn't even a fake cry uh, Coulter offers her a handkerchief and just lets her go and Pan takes his time to sniff at the drink, which seems to be a chamomile tea, nothing more. And he's like, you should drink it. So she does. And Coulter's like, what happened to you at the night of the party? Were you kidnapped? I was so worried. We sent police after you. Oh, my God. She's like, yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> Super kidnapped. <laughs> Oh, yeah. She says, um, you know, these party guests, this man and the woman, they're like, oh, come meet me downstairs. And she's like, okay. And then I ran from them as soon as I could get free. But oh, no, the gobblers brought me here in a van with the other kids. And then she's like, oh, but there's all that other amount of time that I got to account for. But as she's doing all this, she starts to feel good again, like she did when reading the alethiometer. Then she remembers like, oh, wait, I can't say anything too crazy. Gotta keep it vague, light touch. She thinks she's gotta be an artist, so tell us about tell us about this, Tanda. <laughs> this was a moment when I thought Philip Pullman is talking about what it's like to write a book. Like I feel like this is him winking through the fourth dimension at himself. Uh, yeah. Yeah, right? Like this is him being like, eh, you know. <laughs> Good job, me. I did it. <laughs> and then there's kind of like a self high five and uh they continue on. <laughs> They do, because Mrs. Coulter's like, how long were you in the building? Oh, curveball. Yeah, Lyra's like, I got this. Larry, and you can feel, like, it's that meme with uh, with Julia Roberts that has all the, like, math symbols <laughs> everywhere. Like, she's definitely doing the thing, right? Yeah. Uh, she, she counts her time spent with Egyptians. She invents a trip to troll a son. She, fit, uh, she fits in a fabulous escape. Uh, she details uh, some time that she worked as a maid at a bar for some reason. Like, she's really feeling it. And you can see that, like, the whole time she's sort of crying and sniffling and sipping the tea. She worked for some farmers. Then she was caught by the Samoyeds and was taken to Bolvinger. And yeah, that's how she ended up here. Yeah. She's mixing in some of the truth. Yeah. I think, you know, she peppers some of the truth in like a true artist. A true artist. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Really. It was a Monet, but it was good enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like a Monet. <laughs> she ends it all really sympathetically and she's like, but they were going to cut. And Coulter shushes her and tells her she's going to figure it all out. There, there, you're safe, my dear. They won't ever do it to you. Now I know you're here and you're safe. You'll never be in danger again. No one's going to harm you, Lyra, darling. No one's ever going to hurt you. But they do it to other children. 
Why? Ah, oh, my love. It's dust, isn't it? Did they tell you that? Did the doctors say that? The kids know it. All the kids talk about it, but no one knows. And they nearly done it to me. You got to tell me. You got no right to keep it secret. Not anymore. Lyra, 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 darling, these are big, difficult ideas, dust, and so on. It's not something for children to worry about. But the doctors do it for the children's own good, my love. Dust is something bad, something wrong, something evil and wicked. Grown-ups and their demons are infected with dust so deeply that it's too late for them. They can't be helped. But a quick operation on children means they're safe from it. Dust just won't stick to them ever again. They're safe and they're happy and... See. Uh, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, my best. I'll take the You're incredibly... Here, yes. Yeah. You're incredibly creepy. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Super creeposaurus. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid. It's uh, at that moment that Lyra is thinking of Tony Mercurius and she just fucking pukes everywhere. Oh. Uh, <sighs> Mrs. Coulter moves away from her and is like, you're in the bathroom, you orphan. <laughs> She's like, gross. Children are so gross. She like breaks the whole like, honey. And she's like, ugh, fucking spawn. Uh, she's like, I can't believe you came out of my womb. Um, but Lyra interrupts and she's like, why'd they do it? They could leave him alone. Azriel wouldn't do it. Okay. If he knew what was going on. If every other grown-up has dust, then it must be okay. <laughs> uh, she's going to tell every child in the world about all of this. I love that line. <sighs> but tell has- every kid in the world that you've also kidnapped. That's right. If it was good, why did she stop them from severing Pan from Lyra? Checkmate, atheist. And by that, I mean the other way around. But I just really mm-hmm. wanted to work that line in there. It seemed funny to me in that moment when I wrote this. So, cool. And just there's like, if there was a mic drop sound, this would be the time for the mic drop sound. Yeah, it would. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coulter and Lyra are going toe to toe here for sure. Sure, yeah, Coulter's like, well, many of the adults actually have even had the operation. It's quote-unquote good for them. And Lyra suddenly understands, like, oh, that's why the adults, to use the words of Chloe, they're ugly-ass poodles. (laughs) (laughs) Have blank faces. I'm glad that you've retained that that this was evening. My, like, no, I think that's one of my favorite things that you've said tonight. The ugly ass poodles. I mean, there are a lot <laughs> Thanks, of cute ass poodles, but I just Not thought, the 80 page essay I wrote about lobotomy. <laughs> it was just the way you delivered that and that was just so off the cuff. It was from inside of you. You know, I knew it. That was from your heart. That's from your demon. Yeah, they can't sever that from me. It's no, they podcast. can't take that away from me. Oh my god. Lara. Lara. <laughs> Yep. Delilah. Hamlet. So Lyra's like about to go hog wild and like bitch her out. She's mad. But she shuts her mouth because she's like, I can't give myself away. And Mrs. Coulter kind of goes on and she's like, a quick little operation and you're never troubled again. And your demon stays with you. Only just not connected. Like, like a wonderful pet, if you like. The best pet in the world. Wouldn't you like that? Oh, oh, the wicked liar. Oh, the shameless untruths she was telling. And even if Lyra hadn't known them to be lies, Tony Macarios, those caged demons, she would have hated it with a furious passion. Her dear soul, the daring companion of her heart, 
to be cut away and reduced to a little trotting pet? Lyra nearly blazed with hatred, and Pentelimon in her arms became a polecat, the most ugly and vicious of all his forms, and snarled. But they said nothing. Oh my god, Animal Corner. I didn't know this, but I guess polecats are British ferrets. Like, they're native to the British Isles. They're like ferrets, but they're not ferrets. They're called polecats. They're surprisingly not cats at all. (laughs) Full Mm -hmm. disclosure, I thought that a polecat was 100% a skunk. And that Lyra and Pan, knowing that Mrs. Coulter is always filled with revulsion anytime (laughs) she pukes or has bodily functions, that, like, Pan was just playing into that. Oh, my God. Uh, It's slang for skunk in the South in the U.S., so that's definitely, like, true Hmm. where you're getting that. Yes! I didn't know that. Yeah, uh, apparently. (laughs) But there's definitely, like, little ferrets in the U.K., but here they're like skunks. Different names. Like jumpers. that's weird. He's an ermine, which is a ferret, a ferret, which is a ferret, and a polecat, which is a ferret. <laughs> Do you think that that's saying something? Hmm. Uh, they're really cute, though. They have like this cute little mask, like they're going to wrap your heart with love Aww. and talons. Aww. Oh my god. I'm not doing symbolism. I'm just like doing facts now. <laughs> this is just what kind of animal it is. I think what confuses me most is they're like, he became a polecat, like his ugliest form. I'm like, this is actually kind of cute. I don't, it's not kind of, it is, I think it's- It's just vicious. Skunks are super cute. They're just dangerous. Like there's just implied danger if they can, if they can like skunk spray you, right? Have you ever seen that one video? There's this man, he's like on a nature trail, I guess, and biking through it. And then suddenly a family of skunks starts like walking down. Yeah, they walk down and they come say hi to him and they like go shoo, shoo, shoo. And I think he's like terrified in this moment because they are skunks, but they're so cute. They come, they walk all over his feet and they're like, oh, hello. And then they go off on their merry way. It's the best. They have soft little paws. And like if you, if you de, if you degland them, then they're just like little forest puppies. Okay, but I'm not going to sever the skunk, Anna. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, this is how it starts, monster. guys. Also, Mrs. Coulter is oh in me. God. This is how it starts. Wow. <laughs> I wish she was in me. Wow, okay. I said what I said. Pan's also a polecat for a lot of the Golden Compass movie. I figured that out finally when I googled what a polecat was, but yeah. Chloe said what she said. I said what I said. She said what she said. <sighs> Mrs. Coulter tells her to drink her chamomile and that she'll make her a bed so she doesn't have to go back to the other children. She's happy to have her assistant back and tells her everyone was looking for her. And all the while, her monkey paces impatiently, betraying Coulter's serenity. And finally, she asks what she was waiting to ask about. Penny in the air, Penny falls, the alethiometer. She tells her the master probably meant for it to go to Asriel, but that his plans are bad and evil. So really, Mrs. Coulter should have it since it's a silly puzzle. Lyra, of course, would never need or understand, and it's not hers. Yeah, it's funny because the master actually knew differently from what we see. And it's kind of interesting and frustrating to me because in this first book and parts of the later ones, everyone's insistent that like, oh, the lithiometer can't be for Lyra and like it's surely for Lord Asriel and I think in this first few moments it's people trying to rest that story for her because I think that the lithiometer in some ways it's more than just a symbol reader right it's a storyteller that's how it's presented and the story isn't about or for Lord Asriel I don't give a shit about Lord Asriel all right it's Lyra's 
It's always been Lyra's. Anyways, uh, we'll talk about some stuff later, but you guys won't hear it. <laughs> Damn it. It's going in the dustiest discussion. I'm like so proud of you, but so bitter because I'm like, oh, think yes. of all the things at the same time. I'm so proud. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Well, if Am you I Mrs. Just Coulter? Are we all Mrs. Coulter? You're like really proud, but also like really disappointed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Her demon is waiting in anticipation, and Mrs. Coulter grabs the oilskin bag, taking out the tin sealed in wax, telling Lyra, this is a clever way to keep it all together. And I'm just laughing because in the background, apparently, the golden monkey is just, like, shaking in anticipation and imagining <laughs> it just in the back, like, just holding a rib of something and going, like, head, like mini headbang, like, it's happening now! Um... I'm just waiting for him to just like pass out, like just yeah. fall over because he's so excited. And I just can't imagine how she kept herself straight during this because, like, I would have just been like, this is going to be the best. This is the best thing I've ever done. This is so smart. And there's a switcheroo that she pulls here that I've seen her pull in a future, future book, like out of the main trilogy. And it, like, I'm just like, oh, she's so smart. She's so clever doing little things like this moment. Mm -hmm. And I love that about Lyra. She's just such a clever girl. She opens it. Mrs. Coulter opens up that uh, tin, which it's sealed. This is a tin that's sealed with wax around it, if you recall. Yep. It is not the alethiometer tin. It is a tin that Farter Van Trexel, Farter Quorum Van Trexel, sorry. And York. Put wax all over. And York. York also. York made it. it and yeah. she, yeah, she like packed all the. the yep, the grass into it originally. Yeah. yeah. So this is great. She opens it, she gets all the wax off the seal and stuff out, and she opens it, and that spy fly comes zooming out, it crashes into the stupid fucking monkey, I fucking hate that monkey, that it crashes monkey. into Mrs. Coulter, and Lyra just, like, is like, scram, get out of there! And, like, here's the thing, so it's like, a, it is a bomb, right? Like, it is a, 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 a jack-in-the-box that completely changes this scene, and I found myself wondering, in a sort of, like, meta way... If Pullman went back and rewrote the earlier scene mm. where the spy fly tin and the moss and Yorick like get together and Lyra like takes the spy fly over to Yorick and has him hide it in this very clever way. So as a setup, obviously, for this later thing, but I think that I wonder in the creative process if Pullman got to this scene and it was an impasse and and he knew he needed a way out of it and so revisited the rest of the text and thought aha here's a moment where i can do several narrative things i can solidify the cleverness of lyra by thinking of stuff ahead of time i can uh, solidify the connection between her and yorick and make them more connected because they have this moment he does his cool like metalworking shit they have a good conversation and uh, on top of all of that, it ratchets up the action uh, at the end of the sequence so that there's like the buzzing fly and it's sort of like a bomb goes off in Mrs. Coulter's hands. And I 100% between Yorick and Lyra get some Sandor Clegane saving Sansa vibes here, maybe a little bit. Like, interesting. Do you get that at all? Do you get like, that at all, Chloe? You know, like he, he makes a thing. And then she uses it later as a way of protecting herself and empowering herself to save herself. I'm sorry. So she wouldn't have been able who are to these characters? It. So it's it's another thing. You know what? Just forget about it. You what are these characters it from? It's a it's a little known 
novel. Huh. I'm not sure if you'd huh. be into it at all. Was it was it based off of a show? Yeah. Oh, it was based on a show. Yeah, a very uh, middling <laughs> middling show, really. Oh, Not popular. Yeah. Well, it fell flat. Uh, <laughs> so Lyra darts into the kitchen and she turns all the gas stoves on and she lights them up with a match and she throws flour at the counter as well to burst and it lights on fire when she does We're- that in the air. What? We are learning so much about survival, you guys. Like, we can't eat polar bear livers. Explodable flower bombs. What doesn't Philip Pullman know? He's teaching us so much. It was wild. And it's true, dude. It's it's actually true. And this is crazy. I'm not fucking kidding. Did you know it's true because of particles? Particles? When it's in the air as dust, it becomes explosive. You guys, it's a fucking metaphor. This is a metaphor. Lyra just threw dust in the air and is going to blow all the shit up with dust. Like a bomb. It goes off like a bomb. A knowledge Their entire bomb. escape plan would have crumbled around them if she hadn't burst this flower bomb. Portals. Uh, <sighs> the grains are so small <laughs> that they like burn instantly. <laughs> uh, and it's made of sugar. Sugar burns, right? Like look at burning a marshmallow mm-hmm. or Shereen Baratheon. Yeah. Uh, oh my god. The world's largest flour mill was <laughs> Washburn A. Mill. It was built in 1874, and in 1878, 22 employees were killed and it destroyed other neighboring mills in Minneapolis. And I don't know, I can't find the part I was looking, but I swear they say something about the amount of like nurses that die at the facility in Bullvanger. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's a similar amount. I really wonder if he might have pulled from this because. This is like such an obscure like flower burning thing. And that was one of the, bi- it was the biggest flour mill in the world in 1874. And it was just raised to the ground. And it didn't just like raise to the ground. It destroyed like four to five other mills and in the area. And it exploded like it had a powder in the air. Kaboom. Yeah. And that's a big problem like at mills. Like if you go to a mill, you'll find signs on the wall that say like, you have to operate it this way and wear yeah. this protective gear because- it could everything could go up in flames. It could raise out. Isn't wow. that nuts? That is nuts. I feel like I learned a lot today, honestly. The more you know. Oh my god. Uh, well. Lyra runs. Children are running everywhere. The ex- the escape plan is out. Older kids are hurting the younger kids. They're getting their warm clothing that they have socked away. Adults are failing to control it all, shocking no one. And Lyra and Pan make for the dormitory to get the alethiometer from the ceiling tile as an explosion. Kaboom! Goes off in the kitchen. Uh, Lyra tugs on her furs and yells now at Pan, and they run, knowing that it's escape or die, which is super badass. <laughs> <laughs> the corridor is blocked, and the fire has brought down part of the roof already. People are climbing over things to get out into the fresh air, and there the gas is smelling as strong as another explosion. Kaboom! Goes off louder <laughs> and even closer. Uh, it knocks people down, and Pan and Lyra are struggling to get up, finally hauling themselves off into the frozen air. The adult in me was like, Lyra, did you just murder your friends? And the other yes. part of me was like, you had to create a distraction. <laughs> but how did she get out of there? Like, obviously, this is a fantasy piece, because what? Kaboom. Kaboom. Uh, everything is ablaze, and Lyra emerges onto the roof, yelling for Roger until she and Pan, who is Animal Corner in Owl, uh, <laughs> finds him. Um, 
It, interestingly enough, no spoilers, but demons seem to turn into an owl in the story for kids when they need to have better observational skills. I am noticing that, and that is very cool. Like, mm-hmm. spying on things, everything. Demon just goes, pop. I love it. Yeah. I they, don't know that my demon would ever turn into a moth. Do you think your demon, like, have you ever been like, I'm a moth right I now? I hope not. I'm not stupid. <laughs> I just but, spat everywhere. Richard Ford. God. Um, interestingly enough, I'm going to share something with you guys that I think Aliana knows this, and it's an embarrassing fact about me, but the first time I took the Patronus test on Pottermore, I got a mole. Oh. Yeah, okay. And then I retook it. Uh, I used a bad memory for it. That's my problem. I feel like it wasn't fair. I used, like, a bad memory of, like, a horrible person. And, like, now I retook it and I got a white mare. So I feel like that's better and I'm going to accept that. But, yeah, I got a mole the first time. So, like, if my demon was a mole, I would probably be upset. I got some kind of horse, which... Some kind of horse? I don't remember. They had they had really specific horse types on fucking yeah, Pottermore. Like, look, white mare. I had some other specific horse, and I don't... Dude, Eliana, like... what if your demon was a horse? Your what does that, mean? What does that mean about me? I don't know. I, I'm born the Spirited, year of the horse. Free. It depends on the horse. Yeah, yeah, it really depends on the horse. <laughs> a lot of different kinds of horses and, like, out there. How would you deal with it? Like, it's big. Yeah, that's true. And and you would have to be by it. Unless Maybe you, I like, just ride my horse everywhere instead of way. using a car. Um, that's what yep. I do. Oh, so your carbon footprint is big. Actually, yeah. Your naphtha footprint. My your horse. And, and bark footprint. My horse wouldn't even need to, like, eat, if you think about it. Have you heard of yeah. any of these demons eating? I have not. Only me. I don't think they eat or poop, which is good if you have something like a horse. So they're better yeah, than a horse. Their pet. That's the other thing I was thinking. Oh yeah, of. true, true, true. But that's a lot. That's a lot of compost to try to get. Rid of. I don't think like poops. the pooping would be the worst. Yeah. Think about like if I'm mad at someone, you know. You would have the horse <laughs> trample them. No, I was gonna throw or poop, poop on, on them. them. Poop on them. <laughs> Interesting. I immediately go to maximum <laughs> violence. No. You can lead the horse to water, but can you lead the children to safety while the building collapses, Eliana? Um, <laughs> nice. Wow. Because it did. The building just collapsed, and then there's more noise. The howls. The howls from the Tartars' wolf. Oh no. oh no. They stand with rifles in padded chainmail, wearing helmets that cover their face. Lyra is frozen no. in fear. This isn't like the Oxford clay beds. Or is it? Poor she starts to it. scoop together snowballs to throw in the Tartar's eyes, encouraging the other kids to do so. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> That's so Lyra. Uh, and so the demons start to join in directing the snow uh, to the eye slits of the helmets. They distract them and run as much as they can. And then they run again. But they're about to be caught. There's a lot of exciting action in this part. Until the Tartar stops suddenly. Pew, 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 oh, pew! <laughs> the witches arrived! It's arrows from behind! The witches! I love it. And so they were. Ragged, elegant black shapes sweeping past high above with a hiss and a swish of air through the needles of the cloud pine branches they flew on. <sighs> the Tartars still send another troop to try to catch the kids, and all looks lost once more until... Yorick Burdison enters the fray <laughs> with a roar! Bear Dad. 
The troops divide to try to cover both the witches and the bear. And Lyra guides the children to get out of the way, because the Egyptians should be here soon to save them. And then as she leads the children away from battle, Lyra and the children discuss dust. And Lee Scoresby arrives at the battle using the gas from the enemy zeppelins at Bolvanger to fill his balloon and his trip getting there. Brilliant. That's so smart. So smart. Steal their resources. Good job, Lin-Manuel. I mean, Lee yep. Scoresby. I mean, that's the kind of thing Lin-Manuel would do. So I believe it. All I'm hearing is this line from Hamilton that Eliana doesn't understand. <laughs> Great, uh, thanks. That's like, we cut supply lines. Yeah! We steal contraband. And that's totally, I'm like, yeah, Lee Scoresby, you cut supply lines. Yeah. You steal contraband. That's what he's doing. That's what he's doing, um, 100%. <laughs> so the children are starting to get colder. Uh, they're clothing isn't very weatherproof it's cheap crap right like lyra has the good stuff she's got that dead seal she's got them furs but the kids are cold and pan is trying to inspire their demons he's being very bossy may i add i'm like pan good for you getting out of your little airmine shell yep. uh and he's telling them to keep warm and keep warming your humans up and they aren't properly dressed for this and lyra's like if we don't find the egyptians soon we're gonna have some big issues like if these kids lie down we're finished and there's this passage Carter Coram had told her many tales of his own journeys in the North, and so had Mrs. Coulter, always supposing that hers were true. But they were both quite clear about one point, which was that you must keep going. I do think that you must keep going comes into play at the end of this book and is a is a big message throughout this story. And so Lyra then tells them all to keep walking, follow your tracks, and continues to bully, hit, carry, swear at, push, drag, and lift each child to keep them going. <laughs> I'll get them there, she was saying to herself. I come here to get them, and I'll bloody get them. Roger was following her example, and Billy Costa was leading the way, being sharper-eyed than most. Soon, the snow was falling so thickly that they had to cling on to one another to keep from getting lost. And Lyra thought, perhaps if we all lie close and keep warm like that, dig holes in the snow. She was hearing things. I also love how, like, she started to think that, like, what if, what if we all just lay together? <laughs> like, she goes from, like, two minutes ago being like, if they lie down, we're all toast. Yeah. And now she's like, what if we all lie down? She's like, never. <laughs> dig holes in the snow. Dig your own graves. <laughs> like, it goes from never stop, never surrender, to, like, let's just dig our own graves here. Here's a good spot to die. She has the conviction of a 27-year-old woman who runs too much podcasting. Yep. If you know anyone like that. Um, she hears the noise of an engine, and she, there are some more howls in the wind, and she's starting to hallucinate, and she sees lights in the snow, and she's like, oh no, we're back at Bullvanger. But they're not... Like Bullvanger's lights, they're yellow lantern beams, not white ambaric lights. Moving toward them, and suddenly John Fa is lifting Lyra into the air, and Egyptians are picking children's up into sleds, and Tony Costa is hugging Billy Costa, because it's not Ma Costa, because women aren't allowed to do things. And that snarling engine noise comes back, but so does another snarling noise, because the golden monkey knocks Pan to the ground, wrestling and fighting yes. and scratching and... Mrs. Coulter is dragging Lyra to a motorized sledge. I think that's a snowmobile. <laughs> Snow thickens, swirling around them. And she cries out for help. She's being thrown around, dazed. Pan is a wolverine fighting the monkey. And Roger is suddenly there, punching Mrs. Coulter, God bless, and <laughs> hurling his head against her. Ugh. Oh, bless Roger. I, he's I mean, just out here. 
But he's doing his he's best. Nice. He's doing um, his best. I think his best was pretty good for a long time, to be honest. He's doing all right. Yeah. And unfortunately, he does get struck down by a tartar during that. He, he I think he's still Gucci, but he definitely was just struck down. But I, I think the headbutts were great. And yep. while he's getting struck down, the day saved once more because Eorik swipes down into the scene. Can I get a roar, Elliot? <laughs> majestic suddenly someone is lifting lyra once more and roger from mrs coulter's grasp and the demons turn into birds and lyra sees a witch close enough to touch her loosing an arrow into a tartar the witch drops them into lee scoresby's balloon basket and he tells them to get inside they get eoric in as well because semantics i don't know if that would actually work physically because of you know physics but whatever uh the witches let go of the rope holding the ship down and the ship drifts into the sky they're escaping Escape. Escape. Lee is holding Roger in the basket. Lee is holding Roger in the basket. York unfashions his armor and Lee is cheering. The witches fly above them as well. And uh, Lyra now is inside this floating basket, uh, this big aeronautical balloon. She sees furs, bottled air, which I thought was fascinating, uh, and a lot of <laughs> philosophical instruments that have been bolted down around the place. Uh, they fly through a cloud. She wraps Roger, who I think is asleep by this point, in some pretty thick furs. And Lee tells her that a witch lady wants to speak to her, which is how they found out where Lyra was. She thanks Yorick for coming and helping, uh, watching the aurora glitter in the distance. <laughs> There's some things that Lyra has said. Yeah, that we've never let go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The roar. It's the best thing she's and, ever no, said. No, there's the bung. Oh, the bung. You can't the bung forget is the, the bung. Thing. I've never forgotten the bung. I strongly believe <laughs> I've this never stopped. Yeah, I've never stopped deeply believing in the bung. <laughs> yeah, I really haven't. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, I really love this passage. It was just really pretty. And every once in a while, Pullman brings out, like, some pretty passages. So, let's just, you know, look at this word porn for a second. Um... Great swaths of incandescence trembled and parted like angels' wings beating. Cascades of luminescent glory tumbled down invisible crags to lie in swirling pools or hang like vast waterfalls. So Lyra gasped at that, and then she looked below and saw a sight almost more wondrous. As far as the eye could see to the very horizon in all directions, a tumbled sea of white extended without a break. Oh, mm. lovely. Really loved it. Ugh. I don't know. It was just pretty, and we get a lot of this uh, in the future, in the next books, etc. So I, I just love when he writes like this. It's nice. We deserve it. Yep. And then, of course, following all this gorgeous incandescence is the witch that saved Lyra from Mrs. Coulter. She's clad. Who? Oh, <laughs> let me tell you about her. She's clad in black silk strips and wears no hood mm. or mittens. She's got green eyes and a chain of red flowers around her head. Oops. Uh, who, who it's is it? Serafina Piccolo! It's my favorite thing in the world. I love her so much, you guys. I just love her so much. <laughs> Although with the green eyes, I was like, Harry Potter's mom? <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh. Oh my this God. is where she went after. It's Lily Potter. <gasps> Lyra? Yes? And are you Serafina Piccolo? I am. 
Lyra could see why Farter Coram loved her, and why it was breaking his heart, though she had known neither of those things a moment before. He was growing old. He was an old, broken man. And she would be young for generations. Okay, first of all, Lyra, respect your elders. Yeah, Farter Coram's not that old. <laughs> He's not that old, I think. He's really not. He gets yeah. older, too. I mean, like, so, every year. So, so she's so settled all of us. A take. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying that, like, in eight years, Carter Corp is I did not expect this level of saltiness from you guys. Um, <laughs> we're just the guy. He's, like, in his 60s, right? And he's not that old. Yeah. Yeah, that's not that old. My Nana's older. My mom's, like, around that age. And she's she has, a, I think, a more... Yeah active social life than i do holy shit you have an active social i know life, so. right if your mom has a more active social life than you i could never hang out with your mom like you're already pushing it right now i mean mm-hmm. i know i know Me i'm here for a doing week. my podcast <laughs> uh so this is sad i'm sad read la belle sauvage oh and uh <laughs> read the secret commonwealth it's good for your skin it'll water your crops that's all i can say right now i'm just sad i'm sad, I'm sad. so then seraphina asks lyra do you still have the symbol reader and she does and kaisa hey that's my friend kaisa arrives alongside <laughs> her gliding kaisa came so she tells her that the Egyptians destroyed Bolvangra, yes, killing 22 guards and 9 of the staff, lighting the rest of the buildings, oh. and there's no sign of Mrs. Coulter, and all of the kids have been kept safe. Yay! Yay! Hey, thank God for small miracles, right? Um, yeah. Lyra asks how many of the witches it would take to carry them north, and Serphine's like, whatever, we're fucking yoked. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we, cross, we can eat we'll, you into the yeah. sun. <laughs> oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's basically what she said. Uh, that's actually verbatim, the line. <laughs> Lee attaches the rope to iron rings on the balloon, tossing them out to the witches to pull them toward the polar star. There's your son. <laughs> is, is, is no one gonna address the iron rings that Lee ties these ropes to? Because he obviously fucks in this balloon, right? Oh, yeah, I did not go here. Like, this is... I just, it was just me? I just read your note, and oh man, Yo. it's so good. It's so good. <laughs> Does this mean the scores call Pexby, Sarah Leah, my ship, can fly off into the distance on their sprig of wood and their sprig of wood, if you know what you I have mean? To stop. You have to, I'm just saying, I, like I'm not strong enough for this. Lee's all like out there doing some BDSM rope play already. I'm like, Lee, whoa, put it away. Keep it in your pants right now, just because she's here. But imagine it, the bear instead in those rings. I mean, he's also in there, to be fair. It could be all why not all three? God, why not? Why not? A throuple. You know, maybe I'm open-minded, Eliana. Yeah. Maybe this is what we needed to add to the story. <laughs> yes. It was there the whole time. Oh my god. <laughs> the bear. Oh, the witch. You can't stop me. It's and the cowboy. <laughs> I'd read that. I-, I am reading it. This is the story, you guys. <laughs> I don't understand why you're upset with me. This is the ship, and this is the story, and this is what happens. The- this is the airship. <laughs> You know what? Yes, I'm on this airship until it fucking crashes, is what I'm saying. Oh my god. Everyone is asleep except for Lyra Lee and Serafina. Again, because Lee and Serafina love each other. And Serafina asks if Lyra knows why she's going to Asriel. Lyra says she has to take the alethiometer to him, but then she's like, oh yeah, also to save him. Because, you know, he's a prisoner. I forgot about all that. And Serafina says there are things that she needs to tell her about. And Lyra's like, like, dust? 
But Serafina knows Lyra's exhausted and says, we can talk when you wake up. Serafina reaches over. She touches Lyra's eyes gently and sinks to the floor in a peaceful peace. Hand flutters over, crawls up to her neck, and Serafina and the witches continue to take them north toward Svalbard. And that is the end of chapter 17 and part two, Bulvanger. Wow. Dun, dun, We're on dun, part dun. three next. <laughs> we did it. Congratulations, you done it. And we do we do end with Lyra taking another nap. And we do. <laughs> I think that's like how every chapter ends. And then they slept. Like in a many ways. Yeah. Maybe that's how all of the chapters in our life end. Maybe each new day is a new chapter. Yep. Uh, I can see it. Eliana. Uh, <laughs> can I buy that poster? Are you gonna make it available? Should we sell each, that? Is that girls yeah. Gone Canon I each feel like Girls Gone Canon should have inspirational posters, but it would not say inspirational things. It right. says get a job, little finger. <laughs> you miss hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I mean Shoot your shot. I'm all I've been telling myself all the time. Shoot your shot. Well, you guys this, of course, leads us into our discussion, which is going to spoil the main three books in the main trilogy, which is, of course, Northern Lights or The Golden Compass, depending on where you bought your book, comma, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. So if you do not want to get spoiled for that, tune out now. This will be followed by the dustiest discussion, where I monologue like an evil villain for a while, and we'll go from there. Yes. The blade in the guillotine is made from, half of it's made at least, of the same metal alloy the subtle knife is, right? Subtle knife is half made with that metal. And the subtle knife kind of confirms that people that are intersized have, quote, lost their soul in a way and their chance to go to the afterlife, or that's what it advertises, which of course we learn afterlife is actually for everybody and it's a fucking prison because the authority has turned it into a prison, basically. Um, it, it's literally the plot of the good place, I guess, because Lyra is like, oh, this is like not actually afterlife. This isn't heaven. This isn't good. This is like a desolate, awful land. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just purgatory. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you said, we learn later on that turns out those who have undergone intercession can be there because we see Roger, mm-hmm. who is important and is kind of the big reason for Lyra going to the afterlife or one of them and everyone again as you said it's shit in this afterlife <laughs> i want to talk about uh intercision though for a bit because it's a big part of this chapter these two chapters of course and like many other things in this book series because it is based on paradise lost and therefore the story of like the fall and the garden of eden there's a lot of ideas that i think that pullman is drawing from in terms of philosophy and theology uh, last chapter, Chloe spoke about those links between the body and the soul and and how the body cannot exist without the soul. But in Christianity, it seems, in theology, there's more than just the body and the soul. There's also the spirit, right? And in Lyra's house, and in Lyra's world, the body houses the spirit and then the demon houses the soul. In our world, it's like both or slash there's the demon and they're like invisible, I guess. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. I definitely tried to like do the thing that they talk about, like where you kind of like half look. It's like maybe I can see my demon or whatever. Um, at what point in my life I couldn't. I still don't know what I am. A silver guillotine and perhaps the subtle knife and its ability to like separate the soul from the spirit. I think might draw from this passage in the book of Hebrews in the Bible of 
for the word of god is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart so the spirit is the part of humanity which connects with god according to you know theology and that's the part that can pray and be close to god so intercision it's also i think a play on the term intercession which was used to go on behalf of someone uh to petition to god as jesus would dying upon the cross right to petition on behalf of humanity to god um as you can tell my parents are really into god so i know too much anyways the soul is the part that is connected to the world unlike the spirit um, especially the material world it is the part that feels that senses and that experiences the earthly realms so for the blade to separate the two it's like the word of god right because people are saying that this is for their own good it's to keep them innocent or whatever it's that two-edged sword piercing dividing the soul and the spirit it doesn't necessarily preclude someone from entering the afterlife. The spirit is its own entity that goes on without the body. The soul just kind of like dissipates and gets to be like free. Great. Awesome. Congrats. The body, though, perishes uh, as the soul does. No one gives a shit. Your body can't feel anything. It's just meat. Meat. Yep. And which is why the demonless are an abomination, right? Because they end up, they're in this liminal space of the undead. Because the body and the soul are connected in its ability to interact with the world. But the spirit, which persists, I, I wonder if, like, Pullman's arguing, what is the point of the spirit if one cannot experience life in that way? And that is why the spirit and the soul long to rejoin one another in the afterlife. They long for one another to sense once more. And part of how humans have a body, soul, and spirit is why they are stronger, actually, in these books. We encounter angels. In the story, and they turns out are only made up of spirit. I th theologically, some some argue that angels are purely spiritual creatures, and so humans, because they have a body and a soul on top of their spirit, can overpower them. Yeah, um, and it, it's weird because they're literally just like spirit with like what a loose condom. Like I don't know, like they just appear like in that. a weird form. Like they're like flu flu flu, like, and you can't see them except sometimes you can, but then it like. As it's darker, they're like translucent and shit. Like, what is with them? But the the, the spirit, <laughs> the whole spirit and body idea, and like the separation, and what's the point without? Right, like you were saying, like where's the zest of life without being able to actually experience it? And it reminds me also going back to that uh the the double sword that you're speaking of. That reminds me of Saint Michael's sword in both Paradise Lost and also like the Bible with regards to the Archangel. The what? Angel. The Bible? Have you ever heard of it? No, Doesn't I ring so. a bell. Mm -hmm. Um, you should read. You should just watch the movie. <laughs> You're telling us to read the Bible. Clone? Is there yeah, going to be just read the books? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe after three days. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> in Paradise Lost, Michael kills Satan, but Satan comes back because that's just how it is with Satan. But he leads God's armies in war against Satan, and it makes me think a lot about Will wielding that uh, subtle knife in the army to come, the wars to come. And he does have to use it, as we know, um, only only limited, but he does end up having to use it. So a little crazy, especially in Sidigaze, where Sidigaze. he like, cuts the whole tower down. Yeah. Wish I could do that. Not, not that I want to cut any towers down, I just uh, like You're gonna the be idea. on a list if you don't say The ability. <laughs> I've got a horse. <laughs> I'm a Hufflepuff. <laughs> 
Uh, there, there's also some other things in this, uh, like the imagery of Lyra in the crawl space, listening to people speaking so thinly on the other side of the ceiling and determining like where to come out or where she needs to be. That also reminds me like coming back to Will, right, of that idea of being in two different worlds and trying to figure out like where do I open this window? Where, where's the right spot? Similar, similar imagery ideas. I don't know. I, I miss Will. I actually. Can't wait to oh, no. get to Will again. I miss him. Same. Miss him Same. so much. In fact, I'm not going to tell you, but there's a moment where Lyra dreams. And thinks she's dreaming about Will, and in, in in the current secret Commonwealth, and I'm just like Will. Can't wait. I want no, him so back. I, We're not going to get him back. I don't think, but I want him back. I don't know. Just want Will back. That's all I He's want. A Can I tell you the no, one thing that? Not the one thing, but the the only thing I have to add to this conversation is one of my favorite words. Prelapsarian. Do you guys know the word prelapsarian? Oh, it is. I do not. It is just like this delicious word. Uh, and it means mm. of or relating to the fall of man. So this time of innocence mm. before Adam and Eve, before the fall, this prelapsarian time. Uh, and that's a real fucking word that exists, and I just love it. Um, so, there's your vocabulary Wait, lesson. I'm going to use that all the time. Thank you for yeah. the word of the day. I mean, this entire series, up until like technically book three, is prelapse. Yes, right? exactly. How often do you get to use Fun. that amazing word? But it is so applicable. Every episode, yes, it's prelapsarian, <laughs> my dudes. Uh, have you been Have you been wanting to use a big word? In- Every day. This is it. This is your moment. I feel really empty without big words, you know, that I've been severed. Um, <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> whoa, did, so did Coulter taking care of Lyra and getting her the tea and everything and kind of remind you mm. almost of Coulter in the cave with her? Like, I But the see. cave is sadder and patheticer because she like is running from the authority at this point because she finally is like, oh no, what have I done? Oops, it's too late though to correct any of it because I'm evil. Yeah, she's like, kind of like, what have I done? But also at the same time, she's like, let's tear bats apart. And I'm like, okay. I feel like it was just her winning Mother of the Year award, right? Like, one cup of tea, we're even. Like, here it is. Yeah, yeah I t- absolutely. I'm a great mom. I t- yeah, you didn't take pictures before prom. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah, I, I think the, the tea thing, that's interesting because... She serves it then, and Pan's like, "We gotta make sure that this isn't drugged." Yes. And then the next time, then it is. It fucking is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a good, good call out, good catch. Bitch. Yep. Yeah. I love her so much, but my god. Yeah, I read it when I read that. I was just like, "You fucking nuts!" Yep. Jesus. Yeah, she's so intense. Yep. Yeah. There's also, um, yeah, there's so many like things that I keep catching in book one. I'm like, is this like a thing or or a they feel like callbacks in the later books, right? Like Lyra urging the children to leave Bolvangar, just as she has to urge the dead. She's like, no, it's totally fine. You gotta, we're gonna go through this window. It's gonna be fucking sick. And some of them are like, I don't know what's out there. Maybe I'm supposed to be down here. She's just leading us to all get destroyed, especially because people disappear and the kids are all here in Bolvangar, the ones who don't know. They're like, uh, I don't want to go out there. It's like cold. I don't have things. How do I know someone's gonna come and get me? And it's like, well, what you can't see in this burning building and they're like i don't know maybe i can uh yeah and it, it does kind of i think we might have talked about it a little bit but i can't remember we might have i think we vaguely did in the discussion but now i'm trying to remember 
because it was like my first or second discussion. I've gotten joy. You took a nap. Yeah. You just took a nap. Yeah, maybe I lyred it. But (laughs) it is interesting. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of how this affects the story going forward in a bit in the Dusty discussion. Um, But Lyra does make that her mission, right? She, She goes for truth and for good and we obviously see that sometimes she has to do some betraying of her own to get there and lying of her own to get there, but I don't know. No. Yeah. It's a, going forward, it's a rocky road. I mean, that's the thing is this book, you get to the end and you're like, wow, what a book. But especially after watching The Golden Compass with Eliana last week, it's like oh my God. they fucked it up so hard and they left it on an open positive note, spoiler alert, and uh Hannah. Yes. Roger's still alive. How do they do that? How? I was so surprised it ended. And I was like, wait, wait. They filmed all of it, too. This was an end? This was us ending it? Yeah, it's because they hated the entire religion in 2007. It wasn't selling for them. But uh, they wanted it to be family-friendly Lord of the Rings. Anyways. uh, They wanted it to be Harry Potter, I think. They wanted it to be the next Harry Potter. Yeah, Yeah. they ruined it. They ruined it. You can't do that. You gotta lean into the you gotta lean into. But the- they wanted to have sequels still. <sighs> they done messed yeah. it up. But that's what's so important about the end of the story, right? Like that is the driving force, the driving factor that keeps Lyra going through this main trilogy. And after seeing all these horrors done to children, especially to her friends, the people that she associates with, uh, it's off. Yeah, we have to lean into that because at the end, right? It ends up with Lyra going into the other world. And we were talking earlier about you just got to keep going. That's how it is in the North. And I th- I think that's why it's powerful, that ending of the first book, because she's like, I just got to keep going. It's why it's powerful in a way, like at, at the end of the third book, because she and Will don't get to be together because they choose rather than shortening one of their lifespans they just have to keep going because they have to live and Lyra here was threatening Mrs. Coljum like I'm gonna tell everyone about dust and that's essentially Lyra's charge later on in life right you have to keep telling everyone about dust so that you can keep that well not dust but like to live their lives fully to to learn as much as they can so that they can keep that window open that they'll have enough dust for it and just gotta keep going. It's it's, it's very Finding Nemo. <laughs> just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Yeah, that's the everything. A lot of things can be, I think, summed up in Finding Nemo. <laughs> going to be real. <laughs> lots of thematics. Lots of good thematics. Well, uh, ladies, I apologize, oh, but I'm now time. gonna have to kick you time. off. It's my time. Yeah. yeah. So you two, uh, please take your headphones off. I will wave wildly at you when you're okay. allowed to come back. But right okay. now, I need to get dusty. And you get very get dusty. dusty. Uh, get listeners, dusty. if you have not read La Belle Sauvage or The Secret Commonwealth, if you do not want to be spoiled for either of these things, please tune out now. Come back next week when we hit episode seven. Eliana is making faces at me. She's so excited about me taking over the dustiest discussion. But we are going to talk a little bit about La Belle Sauvage and The Secret Commonwealth. She's making rock and roll signs at me. Rock on signs. I don't know. She's she's Give me kisses. This is a lot, guys. There's a lot going on in this episode that makes me think of some of the stuff happening in La Belle Sauvage. Different echoes of people like Malcolm taking a child, going on with a child and saving them, keeping them hidden. And the witches, the witches coming into play. Malcolm's witch saving them on their journey versus Serafina saving them on their journey. It's a very nice parallel. Separation, for example, it's not as rare as we think it is. 
or moreover, it's rare but not impossible, like what it looked like now. In the Commonwealth, we have characters, uh, characters dying that apparently had demons that were separated. And of course, you learn in La Belle Sauvage about Malcolm Polstead and his demon. And later we learn about the conditions, the very rough conditions that caused him to separate from him. Coulter saying the alethiometer wasn't the masters to give is absolutely wrong. It is so Lyra's. We learn in Secret Commonwealth that this alethiometer passed from thief to thief before being stolen from its home in Bohemia at a monastery. And Dame Hannah and Malcolm all agree it's very much Lyra's at this point. The journey Malcolm and Alice took to protect Lyra kind of serves as that blood promise and sacrifice. They both bled for this. Alice was, and just a warning, I won't talk about it deeper than this, but she was taken against her will by Gerard Bonneville, and Malcolm Polstead was shot, and he bled and sacrificed for Lyra, and this alethiometer too. Lyra and this alethiometer have kind of this blood blessing from her friends and family, almost like a prequel version of Serafina Pakala and Lee Scoresby, right? Adoptive parents, and it reminds me of the blessing almost put on a character like Harry Potter by Lillian James with their sacrifice. I haven't finished Secret Commonwealth quite yet. I'm on page 300, but the laws that protect Lyra under Scholastic Sanctuary are being undone by the CCD, and unfortunately, she doesn't quite have that blood blessing. Well, maybe she does. She seemed to survive some crazy stuff until now, and we've learned about the fairy blood now, or the fairy uh, milk that she's drank. So... Once more, people have come together in support of this girl that's traversed worlds, who was once vivacious and ferocious until she separated from her demon, and then eventually had to face this adult life of woe once more. The authority that she sacrificed and lost so much to in order to save the world is back in control, writhing in corruption over something attracting dust and visions of it, and once more is stopping at nothing to silence the prophecy child, Lyra Silvertongue. Reading Commonwealth makes this chapter's victory with Egyptians rescuing all the kids so hollow. It's only the beginning of Lyra's journey, and she has so much to lose still. And it makes me think about, you know, where we are once more with her. It's quite a read. Um, I'm really hoping that once I get to the end of Commonwealth, there's some sort of hope, because right now, it feels really bittersweet, separated, separated from Pan, and outlook not so good, so... I will update you guys. Thank you for listening to the Dusty discussion. And now I will welcome the girls back to me. Hello, hello, Eliana. We get Tana back too. I'm back. Yep. I think I'm back. We have Tana yes. back. Good. Yes, yes, we hear you back. Hello, hello. Thank you for coming back, ladies. I'm sorry to have uh, had to say goodbye to you for a brief moment there. That's okay. We were speaking sign language at each other. So. Kind of. Tana was teaching me words. She taught me wine and turtle. Turtle. Yeah, wine and turtle. This is wine. Yeah, and this, is this wine. little guy is turtle. It's hilarious. Oh this would God. be much more satisfying for your audience if this was a video podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's okay. I uh, put you guys uh, in the corner so I couldn't see you because you were distracting me. So <laughs> nobody puts baby in a corner. I told you I was trying to villain monologue. You weren't letting me. Um, <laughs> What's a villain monologue without minions in the background screen all For sure. Oh my For god, sure. absolutely. Are you admitting you're the minions? Oh, you were saying orange, oh, weren't you? Yeah. This is orange? No, no. Oh, is this orange? I thought I was trying to say this is old. Old. Maybe Still, that the is only, old. the only other thing that I know. Yeah, that, I think well, that you is, do a beard. It's a beard. You gotta it's do like a, beard. a beard. Well, it has to go down, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anyway, so this has been a delight, ladies. This has been uh, a high watermark 
in my own personal life. Uh, and so, uh, so thanks so much for having me on. You guys are amazing. And uh, I love you so much. And I think you have the best podcast. Oh, well, thank you for coming on. You're the best. We were like, we're a little starstruck. We were really excited to have you on. So I mean, you know, yep. You guys. It was a blast. I I love that you just jumped in. You're like, this is it. We're doing it. Yes. You you are officially a girl gone cannon. Yeah, you are. Tell everyone where they can find you on the internet. Plug what you want to plug. What's new with you. Yeah. Let, let everyone know. Uh, fantastic. You can follow me at Tana Ford on Twitter or TanaFord.designs at both Facebook and Instagram. I just uh, rescued a, not a pigeon, a white dove yesterday that landed in my yard. So if you want to see mm. that, scoot on over to any of those platforms. Um, aren't doves just white pigeons they are they're just white pigeons which is why I was like it's a white pigeon but then I was like most people call them doves Uh, (laughs) and I named her Pepper Pepper because she Mm. acted like a pet bird so Pepper the pet bird Uh, I was going to say Anne like the Disney show oh Pepper Anne Pepper Anne or Pepper Potts for Iron Man but uh, speaking of comics you can check out my latest work on uh, Livewire at Valiant issue 11 comes out I want to say this Wednesday but it might have been last Wednesday and then issue 12 will be a month from now or pick up uh, LaGuardia uh, by Nettie Okorafor and illustrated by myself uh, which I'm very proud of but that's where you can find me on the internet and if you want to hear me get drunk-ish and talk about or boozy and talk about Game of Thrones <laughs> stuff check out Westeros Wineverly with Dave and Tana on uh, wherever you can get fine podcasts and you don't only do you don't only do a Song of Ice and Fire coverage right we you also did do the Westworld yes one? we did Westworld we spun ourselves off and did some Westworld stuff but oh, yeah. you guys are in-depth analysis and Dave and I are utterly surface analysis we're not even surface we're mostly just chatting with each other about life so uh so come to us if you just want to hang out with friends and have a themed cocktail and chit chat about a thing we like a lot i like that i'm into that yeah we're always down to do that do you want to do this and i'll do that yes. okay i mean i'm just kidding eliana i could never leave you i'm legally tied to her thank you so much thank you so much again tiana um as always if you guys have not already please make sure to subscribe to us on any platform that you listen to podcasts whether it's google play spotify iTunes and Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Acast, you name it. We're on them all. Yep. And be sure to keep up with us on social media so that you know when these episodes are coming out. We haven't necessarily been following the same sort of regimen for our His Dark Materials episode. So you can find us on Twitter at Girls Gone Canon. Or maybe you, too, have a an email or tweet that you would like to share with us. Shoot us something on social media or give us an email on girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. <sighs> I promise, guys, they don't bite. They're Aww. really nice. Yeah, Tana, Tana sent us an email. And I was like, oh, look yeah, at us now. Now she's on our she's podcast. Interested. Thank yeah. you for being our first. Yes. Our first is Dark Materials, guys. <laughs> oh, you're first. Yes, it's my first time. <laughs> we do have an episode coming out after this for his Dark Materials next week. We're taking a little break from Jon Snow in our Song of Ice and Fire podcast. We'll be back on November 8th with Jon Snow in A Dance with Dragons and A Song of Ice and Fire, but we will be trying to race to the end of the first book in the His Dark Materials trilogy with our next episode, episode 7, chapters 18, 19, and 20, the beginning of part 3. 
coming out next week sometime. And uh, look forward to the very last episode, episode eight for those last three chapters coming out right before the show airs. So we will see you then. And of course, again, you can find us on Patreon where we this month switch things up because we want it to be spooky for Halloween, but also just because I had never seen the Golden Compass movie. And we did a <laughs> video, a video for this of us discussing the Golden Compass movie this time. It was my first time watching it this past weekend, and it's also my last. <laughs> you took one for the team. <laughs> Truly. Uh, you only had it for 48 hours anyways. Thanks, yep. YouTube. Um, as always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. And I've been one of your guests, Hannah. <laughs> yes! Finally! Oh, someone. Okay. Thank you. Oh, somebody finally thinks we're funny. <laughs>